People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Good morning. Hello and welcome to Greenwashed with me, Jaspreet, and my co-host, Don Nicholson. Thank you so much for joining us for this show. And for our listeners, a reminder, our number is 2057. If you'd like to text us some feedback and our email is inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. Hi, Don. Good to have you oh, back. Great to be here, Jaspreet. Uh, it's been a fortnight, so let's let's rip into it. There's a lot happened. There is a lot that's happened. I, I know I keep thinking I could do with a boring existence for once. <laughs> you can't let the grass grow under your feet. It just wouldn't work for you. I know that it could work for me because I'm older. <laughs> I can tell you I feel really old. Well, I think we'll begin with the feedback, and we've got quite some feedback coming in uh, from the week before last. So, yeah, well, look, there's some good feedback. Uh, we had some good guests, of course, uh, Bernadette, Logan, and um, and I've forgotten the, other, the third one, just momentary forgotten. Um, but yeah, great guests, and we got good feedback, and and may it long continue. We want the feedback, we encourage it, what's and all. Absolutely, warts and all. So this one was from Paul, and I, I really like this one. Hi, I would like to see a fire levy attached to the carbon price as a solution to farms going to pine. The levy would stay higher than the price of carbon. Great show. Thanks, Paul. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a, that's a good angle. Um, good luck with getting it. I mean, there is a whole concept that could fall over yet. Uh, if we all had our way, who knows? But you're right, Paul. The um, the carbon farmers, uh, depending on their rating um, conditions in their local authority, we don't know how or who's going to be paying the bills. So, you know, yeah. let's let's hope you're not paying the bills for fire management over there. But yeah. I wouldn't hold my breath, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> This one, I just breathe and Dawn, I really enjoy your program. Great guests. Climate always changes, so it is a big hoax, but people feel so proud that they're saving the planet with their cars, etc. That when one 
mentions lithium mining, the response I get is, I've got a phone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, look, there's lots of uh, angles people can always bring back at you. And as I've always um, brought up with you, Jasper, constantly it's about climate change. Constantly it's about methane. I'm of the opinion the biggest greenwashing scam in New Zealand's history is the methane uh, madness that has permeated the, the whole narrative in this country around greenhouse gases and climate change. So I'm hoping that um, that's my angle. That's my equivalence to uh, the lithium discussion here. <laughs> Got to break it out. Got to break it up. Yeah. Logan, Logan Evans, ex-Groundswell, his uh, segment certainly got uh, the attention of many. Logan was speaking in the midst of his bit about uh, holding your politicians, your leaders accountable. And I've had multiple responses here saying that's a great idea. Those people we pay need to be accountable. We all need to start turning up to council meetings like they do in the USA and demanding answers. Let's just say no. And, you know, it, it might get to that. I Did you see the video, done of uh, the people at Hamilton going to the 20-minute uh, cities? Yes. Yes, I did. Oh. And it's certainly growing in uh, in its presence, the, the, the understanding of what's going on around us. But interestingly, um, good, good, good feedback because, you know, I'm going to go back to my methane story. If that is found that we have um, been led astray by our regulators and our politicians, who is accountable? I mean, farmers have been abused on this front for 20 plus years. Who is going to be accountable when, when if, if in fact, and I, I believe it's going to happen soon, um, the methane argument falls like a deck of cards? Who's going to be held accountable? We have paid for the 20 years of abuse by um, NGOs and the like. So I would like to think someone's going to have to fall on their sword and say, I got it wrong. If Actually, the good thing would be if a politician or a bureaucrat could say, we got it wrong. We just got it wrong. And we're so sorry. We'll move on. But they won't even do that. You and I would say sorry. Yeah. We would. I, I would. And, you know, we, we keep talking about all of these uh, issues that are going on in the background. Uh, seemingly in the front is everything is all right. But I would love to be wrong about everything I've said, Don. I'd be thrilled if I was wrong. And I'm sure so would you. We, we don't want to be right about this stuff. And, and it's the more we dig, dig, the worse it seems to get for us. Now, I never... I never had this um, thought that the things could be so awkward and so devious and so what I call rotten in the background. Um, mm. But it's all around us now. Are we in 1% of the population? Are we in 5%? Are we in 50%? I think it's growing, uh, but it's not enough yet to turn the tide in a in a big way. Mm. Um, but hopefully the, the tide is turning. Yeah. Do you want? Do you've got a couple of uh, feedbacks there for Bernadette's segment, Don? I I do have. Um, I was really encouraged by the interview with Bernadette Hunt. She spoke so well about the issues that many of us out in the world relate to in respect of this worldwide response to the so-called pandemic, which I've always considered a pandemic right from the start. I've had very similar experiences uh, with those who those in the workplace where 
I have developed close trusting relationships only to find they were taken in totally by uh, Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister's response. When you build long relationships with people and have them challenged by what I could see was a farce from the start that made me say no thanks to the jab. None of them had done any research whatsoever, but fortunately, they are still there today and uh, for which I'm thankful. Thanks. It's always nice to know that there are people like me out there with critical thinking skills. P.S. Mm. I would like to donate my preference is cash. I don't know. <laughs> I don't want it going through the systems. Anyway, that was from Bill. Um, yeah, really nice to, to have that feedback. Uh, Bernadette is so caring and so passionate about her community, her family and her community. And she felt, uh, I think you got that from her interview, she felt jilted by the system. And it's taken her a bit to get back on track, but but she will. She's a tough person. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, just one last one, I think, before we move on down with the show. This is from Mark, Mark Young. Written. Yeah. I just written down further to your discussion about the Club of Rome. Here's a, this, he sent us a link to an interview by Altmark's Brandon Smith. He shows how we'll be trained to embrace the austerity and authoritarianism needed to maintain the climate change-driven feudalism. I like that term, climate change-driven feudalism. I've often used the term, you know, our tech overlords and so on. Yeah, this 1973 ABC interview reminds me of how us kids in those days, just like Don said, had the shite scared out of us with promises of nuclear winter, rubbish mountains, and all the other Club of Rome BS. Regards, Mark Young. Yeah, well, Club of Rome's but one of the um, tentacles, as we call them, uh, but it is a big one, no doubt about that. <clears throat> and so, yeah, the feedback's been great. Uh, we know there's lots more, but I um, haven't got time to, to, to talk about them all. Uh, yeah. I, but, I know, think... Mm, the last two or three weeks, uh, you're obviously heading into winter. Southland's having its frosts and, you know, you've had a break away and we've all had the early winter coughs and colds. So let's hope we're ready for a, <laughs> yes. let's hope that's purged and we can get on with real stuff. And when I got away, just this is just domestically, uh, I uh, on a New Zealand flight, I had a cup of tea. And uh, the cup that was given to us, you know, it said, uh, I'm made from plant, not plastic. It, there was a cookie with it and uh, had it. And at the end, with a very kind uh, air hostess, she came along to, you know, take the rubbish. I couldn't help but notice that the plastic and the decomposable, compostable cup were all going in the same black rubbish bag. Greenwash product? I don't know. Well, you have to be suspicious, that's for sure. And, and and I'm sure if you had the ability to track it uh, from the time it exited the aeroplane, uh, I think your suspicions might be well-founded. Uh, but mm. anyway, who knows? And on that vein, we're going to uh, head to a break now. But after the break, we're going to hear from Gemma Rasmussen, who's the Head of Research and Advocacy at uh, Consumer New Zealand. And they're running a, product, uh, a project called... Uh, trying to identify greenwashed uh, products. So, um, yeah, we interviewed Gemma for about 20 minutes, so that's coming up after the break. See you then. See you then. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Hello and welcome back to Greenwashed. 
with me, Jaspreet Boparai, and my co-host, John Nicholson. And I'm very pleased to welcome today, Gemma Rasmussen from Consumer NZ. Welcome, Gemma. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on at rather short notice. And it was Dawn, actually, who noticed and who, in fact, pointed out that Consumer NZ would be a great fit for Greenwashed. So, Dawn, what were your thoughts? Well, exactly. Um, Because we uh, have the show called Greenwashed, and I saw as a member of Consumer, I thought, oh, that's um, using the word, uh, better better investigate that a bit further. So with a bit of um, email traffic to and fro, we've got this this interview with Gemma and I'm very, very pleased to have, have it. Um, yeah, it's interesting, the term greenwashed hasn't been in the parlance of society, really, unless you're really interested in it. And so what, what Gemma sort of made this come to the forefront of consumer thinking uh, the consumer organization thinking what was the, what was the trigger that sort of because you're developing a, a concept a project and that's the key here you're doing a project on it what was the trigger sure so what we noticed was um in other countries uh in australia and um, the uk and the eu there seemed to be a lot of investigation going into the greenwashing space so regulators were doing um, multiple industry-wide sweeps to look at when products were sold um particularly products that were marketed as sustainable, whether when you really dug into uh, what was being sold, whether those claims could be verified or if they were in fact misleading. And what was found in all countries was there was a pretty high degree of um, greenwashing. And when I say that, I mean a claim or an insinuation that something is environmentally friendly when really you dig into it and and it isn't so much um and what we have found you know there's a lot of research papers out there that show the more sustainable a product is the higher the likelihood that someone is going to buy it or that they're going to pay a premium perhaps over another item that doesn't have any green claims so with that um with that in mind we really were interested to see what the landscape in new zealand was like in relation to greenwashing um it was the regulators that were doing the work in the space in terms of these industry sweeps. So in New Zealand, there's the Commerce Commission um, and and we were interested to see what work they'd done. They've put out really great guidelines to businesses about what they can and can't say with products, but there does seem to be a disconnect at the moment with what the guidelines are and what companies are actually doing in terms of greenwashing. Um we think there could be a little bit of a case of it's like that thing when they're all the cars on the road are driving 110 kilometers and you know that you know you're probably not going to get stopped because because everyone's doing it there is a little bit of that in New Zealand and we are relying on uh we're relying on someone um either a competitor or a member of the public alerting the commerce commission then it being investigated then it potentially um going to a court and then there potentially being prosecution so there's a really low chance right now for businesses actually being pinned for greenwashing the other thing that we know is it's really hard for people to identify what greenwashing actually is if you're looking at a product on a shelf and it's got a green leaf and some eco-friendly words how how do you distinguish what is truly sustainable and what is not? Yeah, so and that was my next question. And I, you know, I think I'm going to play the devil's advocate. Um, effectively, 
sustainability seems to mean a lot of different things to different people. So how can you be rigorous about what sustainability is if, if we've got this sort of variance in people's thought processes? Well, it's actually, it is really hard for people to know. I think when you think about a lot of the items that people are buying, particularly at the supermarkets, you're making really quick decisions. You might have your kids, you might have a, somewhere that you need to be. Um, so our investigator, it took her hours to actually uh, ascertain whether a claim was real or whether it was just marketing spin. And this involved going to companies, asking them what they meant specifically by the things that they had written, um, kind of having to read through some marketing spin. And, and so if it's taking a senior investigator that amount of time to understand what is in fact greenwashing and what's a real claim, it just means that members of the public really have no hope, um, which is why we feel there needs to be um, stronger legislation and, and, and rules around what people, what what companies can and can't do in this space. So, so the buyer beware um, argument isn't isn't for you necessarily. I mean, I accept. Again, I'm playing the devil's advocate mm. here. Um, buyer beware has always been sort of how it is. Yeah. Uh, um, the regulator that regulations that are around it at the moment aren't um, robust enough. Is that what you're saying? I think uh, or, so. Or they're just unenforceable. They're unenforceable because they're a bit loose. I think that there's good guidance. I think technically, under the law, under Fair Trading Act, you can't be misleading customers. Technically, if we were all going to follow the letter of the law, then these companies wouldn't be able to do what they're doing but the current system isn't working because the guidance isn't being picked up on um if people can't identify greenwashing how do they know to report it if it's not being reported then people aren't being penalized so that you know there, there would occasionally be examples but we did a really um rudimentary basket analysis so it was just a few items from the supermarket and we found that it was you know pretty prolific what, what was being claimed, which highlights that that there is a problem here. And I guess if you look at other countries and and sort of what they're doing, so, um, you know, some countries are banning terms like the words eco and sustainable and things like that, because you could have a, um, a window cleaner or a, um, a spray and wipe, and it could be called eco clean TM. So that's a trademarked word. Um, and not have to have any green uh, claims or, or anything substantiated behind that at the moment. And I think it's really fair that if someone is at the supermarket and they see a nice kind of brown spray bottle and it says eco and there's some leaves and, you know, some calming natural imagery on the front, yeah, fair enough. Like you'd buy that and, and, and you might be passing up exactly a really similar product next to it which doesn't have any of these green claims and you could be paying a premium and really that's just marketing spin and i have a feeling i've been caught up in that in the past and i know my family certainly has been yeah so, absolutely uh, i think it's really understandable i've sometimes looked at products and they say home compostable but no, they are actually not. There's a mix of other products in them and there's a whole lot of other small print that goes with it. And suddenly those things are not really compostable that you think. And That's right. That's exactly terms it. like planet conscious marked on products. Mm -hmm. It would mean 
it could be anything to anyone. That's a very ambiguous term. That's right. So I think that people are able to um, have quite ambiguous terms at the moment. And then also around compostability, you know, we don't have infrastructure in New Zealand for industrial composting at the moment. So um, technically something could be compostable if that framework existed, but it doesn't. So is it is it fair to say that something's compostable when, when technically it isn't? And I think the really hard thing with all of this is that so many shoppers are really conscientious. They do want to do the right thing. They are happier to spend a little bit more money, um, but they're not getting the whole picture here. And and one thing we have seen, particularly in the wake of the flooding um, and the cyclone that's happened, is that uh, people are feeling with with climate change that it's more you know on on their doorstep as opposed to a a global issue. And they are wanting to take more action and, and more change. And, and that can be through their purchasing habits. Right. right. So so um, I, you've, you've gone through nine products. Um, do you yep. want to just touch on a couple of them and, and explain what you found? Sure, absolutely. Um, so one of the things that we looked at was a Botanica Airwick um, room spray. And it says that it's planet conscious and nature inspired. So um, what does that mean? What does planet conscious or nature inspired means? We think that um, that could lead people to think that that's better for the environment than it actually is. When we reached out to the spokesperson for this company, they said that the term nature inspired is subjective rather than scientific. And it just means that when they're sourcing the essential oils, they're doing it responsibly um, and they're getting ingredients from nature so what on earth that means uh, if you know <laughs> please let me know because I, I'm i not sure about that um, as I was saying about this you know not having industrial compostable facilities in New Zealand Dilma teas um, they, on their packet it said biodegradable tea bags. I think for a lot of people, if they think biodegradable, they're thinking they could chuck it in their home compost and it's going to break down. That's not what it means. People are not able to get these to industrial composting facilities, which means that basically they're just going in the bin. Um, and 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 so we think that the term biodegradability is a stretch and Dilmati actually removed um that claim from their packaging after we raised those concerns with them. Um, another one that was kind of interesting, it, it brings into this question around best, best practice. So there were some uh, wipes, some baby wipes, and um, they claimed to be compostable, and technically they are, but what do you do with baby wipes? You clean babies when they've, you know, had an accident. So that's wheeze or, or poos. And, and you can't put things like that in the compost. So in terms of best practice, you have to put it in the bin. There's no way that you can be putting these wipes in the compost. So to be making these claims when you know that they're actually going to end up in the bin is is problematic. And this this baby wipe had the term Earth Smart TM. So again, it's a it's a vague and and meaningless claim. Um you know, yeah. with the idea that, that people might think that it's a bit greener than it is. Gemma, I was also looking at uh, one report that on the consumer page you've done on the carbon neutrality, mm -hmm. and more specifically those claims by the warehouse group that states it's New Zealand's most sustainable retailer since 2019. Mm -hmm. But what the report says that 
the warehouse's carbon calculation starts when it takes ownership of the products and it doesn't include the greenhouse gases emitted to produce the products. That's from nearly 500 factories in India and Bangladesh and China. That's amazing. And yet every time I walk into my local warehouse, that's the mm-hmm. sign there. We are carbon neutral. That's right. And and then they're not taking into consideration when those products leave and the breakdown as well. And and a lot of the warehouses' sustainability claims are based on goals that they have for the future as well. So, you know, we really take issue with the warehouse positioning themselves as a as a sustainable company because how can you on one hand be selling single-use disposable items for Easter and Christmas and Halloween and and be promoting this really excessive um, just-for-today consumption and then at the same time be claiming to be sustainable and and New Zealand's most sustainable company. Um, We really think that's a bit of a stretch. Do we have regulators in other countries that have possibly clamped down upon this sort of thing that we are not doing right here? Yeah, I think that we are a little bit behind the eight ball when it comes to um, advertising standards and regulation in relation to uh, green claims and what you can and can't do. So this is something that we would really love to see change. And and we totally recognise that this is um, an emerging space. This is something that has really kind of snowballed in the last five to 10 years as people want you know, more sustainable um, purchasing habits. But we think that companies are really savvy and they do understand the the buying um, power influence that it gives them. So I, I do think that there is a little bit of a disconnect between between government and, and where our current laws and frameworks are sitting compared to other countries. Like if you look at the EU, they're, they're really quite progressive um, and, and I think we do have a ways to come. But sometimes the problem in New Zealand can be, um, you know, there's multiple issues and what, what gets prioritised. So, you know, I, I look around uh, the streets of, of New Zealand and the, and the countryside, often littered, um, it really annoys me, uh, a lot of fast food packages and the like. Do you, have you ever done a survey on the New Zealanders that really do care about green um, green products with that inverted comma green? Because um, it seems to me, if we're supposedly getting to be a cleaner sort of country, why is the litter seemingly worse um, than I can ever recall? You know, yeah. I live in, we live in Southland, and um, I, every time I drive to the city, I just get so despondent with with the litter bugs. Yeah, I think there's um, there's definitely pockets of of society that are really passionate and concerned about climate change and and about making a, a green a green sustainable choice. Um, but that is possibly not across the board. Um, I know that when we look at shopper considerations, what has really come to the forefront beyond anything now is price. Price is, is trumping everything because of a cost of living crisis. So a lot of people may um, in the past have been concerned about sustainability or maybe they never have, but what their primary concern is is the here and now and, and being able to afford things and, and get through and potentially worrying about the climate may be um, a luxury that they don't have. Mm. It's amazing how economic reality and, you know, 
the reality check that gives you right now. And mm, I, I can absolutely. completely identify with that as a mother. And, you know, for a family, you go shopping. Often it's it's the supermarkets where people are feeling the biggest pinch. And I have mm. I watch shopping behavior around me. As a farmer, I just, just tend to and see what are they putting in their baskets. And you often see you have green credentials on certain meats, certain products. People are just going for the bargain. That yeah. is, a, I doubt anything else is crossing their mind, regardless of whatever the sticker says. It's a dollar that trumps. Yeah, and that's really understandable. I think um, in the last year, for people going to the supermarkets, it's starting to get really scary that you go in for a top up. You might be grabbing six items, and you're paying like a hundred dollars or hundred and twenty dollars for a, for just a few items, whereas that maybe used to be half your weekly shop or something like that so um you know we do really um empathize with people who are just trying to get by and make the best choices and it may be that they have to go for a product that isn't going to last as long and end up in landfill because that's all they can afford or they're not going to be able to prioritize a sustainable choice or an ethical choice because you know the focus is on feeding their family and, and, and getting through the week or even in the case that if they can't afford, I'd be a lot more infuriated when I was, you know, hard pressed for my budget to buy something with green credentials that didn't turn out to be what they were promised. Yeah, I think that's a really frustrating thing. And and it would be fair enough if people were, um, you know, feeling upset and, and misled about how much they had spent on things if it didn't actually turn out to be particularly sustainable or green at all. Yeah. So there's a lot of uh, balls in the air to um, make this sort of stuff land. Um, you know, how's, how many people are involved in your project within Consumer? Is it is it a huge project? Is it well resourced? Is there um, is there a finite term on it? Uh, is it like the end of this year? Will you have a report done? Or so we are a really small team at Consumer. We have got about fifty people, and that's across you know our our writers, um, our podcast team finance like the whole business is, is 50 people so we are relatively small fry and um you know one of our biggest constraints is having enough money to do things we're member based and so what we're currently looking at right now is um you know approaching uh potentially government or philanthropic partners for um for funding to help us do this because we do have some resourcing to put at it but we'd love more because what we really want to do is something similar to what the regulators overseas have done and to do a multiple industry-wide sweep of um, greenwashing claims so that would include you know uh, beauty products and textiles and um you know, uh, cleaning products and across the board because we really think that the the first step in this is to get an understanding of how big the problem is in New Zealand um, and then that can help push make the push for legislative change so um, that's when our advocacy arm comes comes into play so our, our policy and advocacy team there's about five of us and and we'll be really looking to kind of you know use use um, the reach that we have through media and through our members and supporters um, to get people on board and um, to to check out the campaign and, and help push for that change. So, if anyone, um, if any of your listeners are interested, simply type type in consumer and greenwashing, and and you can check out the campaign page and sign up to become a supporter and, and get updates if that's of interest to you. 
Sure, and on top of that, that's uh, to be a member of the consumer um, organisation is not that expensive for the advice that you can get if you are interested in household products and and the like. I mean, what you're doing here is sort of a new direction, isn't it? It's for for consumer. Yeah, it is. We um, in terms of the advocacy work that we have are doing, we are one we're we're trying to be. Uh, more focused across rather than just, you know, general day-to-day trade conflict or product testing. We're thinking about things like data privacy and cost and and health and um, housing and and climate change and sustainability and things like that. So we are broadening our focus, but we are also trying to be more interactive with our supporters and members. So I think traditionally we we had an article um, and a magazine and, and we had the website and we provided information, but we are really interested in actually hearing what what people think and, and hearing about their experiences and and using that as a basis to advocate for change and, and to create a more positive environment for people where they can go out and and feel empowered and and make decisions that they're confident with. So, yeah. All good. And Gemma, I'm conscious of the time and I know you have to go. Thank you so much for your time today with Reality Check Greenwashed. And we'd love to have you back when you folks are back, you know, with your Mm -hmm. report and learn more about greenwashing in New Zealand. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was great to talk to you both. Thanks, Gemma. Thanks, Gemma. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Welcome back to Greenwashed with me, Jaspreet and Don Nicholson. That was quite an interesting conversation with Gemma, Don. And I know you you subscribe to Consumer Magazine. I don't. What did you think of it? Well, I, yeah, great that they're doing a project. Uh, uh, it intrigues me, though. I've always been a buyer beware man. Um, and I, if I want to look at labelling, I, I will. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm just a bit concerned that maybe there's an overreach, perhaps, uh, but that's that's what they've deemed as their job, and that's the project that Jim is doing. So let's see what the res- what results come out of it in, a, in six months or a year's time. And uh, listeners, if you have some products in mind that you think are you know there is greenwashing going on there, like the I'm a plant based, not a plastic cup that Air New Zealand serves that I mentioned, send us a text on 2057 and let's dig into this what else are we being sold under the guise of you know sustainability and being good stewards of the environment yeah but- well and, and, and certainly um, as you heard in that interview they're looking at through their project uh release they're looking at nine different products and uh yeah they would i'm sure want to look at lots more if we could give them indications of others then Maybe they'll be the ones that do that assessment, not us. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we'll have a look at uh, some of the rural rags here, Don. And well, uh, there is, gosh, as I said, I'd love a boring existence, but uh, here we go. Just looking at the Farmers Weekly last week, there yep. seems to be certainly, uh, much as you know, our government would declare that food and fiber is doing really well. It says there's a chill threatening land profits, and 
it uses the adjective nervous, nervous farm gate milk price predictions. All is not uh, so green and rosy, it would seem. Well, that's the way it looks. Uh, there's not a lot of positive news in here. And of course, when you look at the on-farm, inside the farm gate inflation, uh, you know, we've had fuel and fertilizer, admittedly both of them have eased off a bit lately, but uh, the biggest inflationary aspect seems to be coming from government agencies now uh, when we see local authority rates commonly heading towards double digits. Um, mm. Doesn't seem doesn't seem fair. So, yeah, and international product prices, they are what they are. We've um, we've never been price price setters, really. We're price takers, not makers. And looking at the farm gate price inflation, I believe the official figure is something around 16, 17% as yes. compared to the inflation that the rest of New Zealand is worrying about. That's at around 7%. Mm. Rural New Zealand is certainly hurting far more. And even that, you know, there's many products between uh, rubber gloves, teeth and all uh, replacement bits that I see on the farm. We've gone up by 30, well, uh, 25, 30% in many of these things over the last 18 months or so, even on small ticket items. Yeah, it doesn't matter. I'm, I don't buy as much as I used to, clearly, uh, but it's it's everywhere I look, the increases are significant. Uh, will they ease off? Well, uh, who knows? Oh, you'd like to think they have in the past and they may ease back, but generally they just settle and that becomes the new bench, you know, the new baseline. So even perhaps fencing wire, and there'll be lots of it being used in the Hawke's Bay area. Uh, you know, I I just, people are um, stretched to the max. And uh, when you add in, you know, the cost of fuel, as I said, it may have eased down, eased off quite a bit, but it is, and fertilizer, still massive imposts on the farming business. And then interest rates are the killer for most. You know, you know most of my farming life, uh, I was hovering around 10% interest. Uh, but we've got used to 3%, haven't we, and 4%. Yes. And so yes. I do feel for any person who hasn't fixed their mortgage for the next few years at sort of, let's say, 4 to 5%, and homeowners are equally as stretched. So, yeah, interest rates are the killer at the moment. They're the big ticket item that no one's escaping from. No. So, And then there's a familiar face here, Sean Handy. Oh, Sean, uh, Mr. Modler, what's he up to? From HDM. COVID modelling, you've gone on to climate modelling now. Climate modelling, yeah, and he's like, looking like he's wanting to make some money out of um, carbon units. He, he's in a voluntary carbon market, okay? So no doubt he wants a compulsory one in the end because a voluntary carbon market is intriguing. I would have thought he could have gone and bought his own farms and you know, said that maybe I'll I'll set this up as a uh, as a farm to uh, sequester carbon on behalf of others. Maybe I that's know. what he's doing. I don't know. Yeah, because at the end of this article, it's intriguing. He talks about he, the voluntary carbon market and carbon units, uh, but in the end, he sort of indicates that it would be nice for the voluntary market uh, to. It looks like to me morph into a. Um, compulsory yeah and into a legislated um, market which of course uh in my opinion is a false market can never be um one that you would rely on anyway um 
interestingly, yeah. how a, a man who's a COVID modeler turns into a modeler for, or it turns into a, a, a guy setting up commercial carbon markets, probably shouldn't surprise me. You know, <laughs> everyone's looking for a dollar out of something that, you know, yeah. the, the government gives them the privilege to to gain it from. It's interesting. I note uh, um, the name Hendy's intriguing, aside from uh, his COVID modeling with uh, Susie Wiles and and Michael Baker and co. And you know, that turned into being really accurate, didn't it? Um, the name Hendy came up to me the other day and, and when I was thinking about this, and um, I think it's his sister is the CEO of the Climate Commission. So, you know, Wellington... Yeah, you know, when when you get in that Wellington machine, it's good to you. It is. It is good to you. I looking at can't help but go back to NZ Herald and see what all Sean predicted a couple of years ago, twenty twenty one, when his figure said that even if uh, the vaccinate ninety percent of the country, they're still talking about seven thousand deaths a year due to COVID. And uh, continued masking, and as you said, at 80-90%, even then there'd be you know 800 to a million Kiwis who would not be vaccinated. And what shall we do? Because he suggested then, with his uh, employer, that vaccinations alone wouldn't be enough, and public health measures would be needed. Yeah, time, time certainly. Two years back, hindsight is a great thing. Yeah, well, it, there needs to be a reassessment or an, an assessment of all of the accuracy of all these things. Uh, you know, COVID, climate, doesn't matter what it is. Um, most of their predictions haven't been that great. Uh, I'm not sure I could hold my head up high uh, with some of the stuff that I've read in recent years. But it, the, the output of these people does seem to be a little odd. Uh, compared to the realism that that we require as citizens, we just want to know the truth. Um, and have we had it? Not sure. Time will time will expose the, their folly. Time will expose everything. But mm. another article that caught my eye was the article by Alan Emerson on uh, the steel subsidy. He ne- really got down to the brass tacks here because uh, keen readers, listeners would be aware that. Um, Last month in May, we have subsidized NZ Steel to the tune of, I think, 140 million for decarbonization. Mm. 140 million to a private enterprise. You know, it is, and meanwhile, we can't afford to fix our roads and bridges or leave those, even hospitals. Well, it's interesting, uh, even on top of all that, uh, the company in question uses coal massively in Australia. Mm. So it makes no sense that we should um, encourage uh, subsidising them here while they can go back home and uh, effectively use as much coal as they like. Seems a huge double standard to me. But uh, as you're right, Jasper, as taxpayers, we just shouldn't be footing the bill for this uh, at all. Alan really went into detail here. Uh, NZ Steel, its owner is uh, Blue Scope Steel, Blue Scope Steel in 2022 made a profit of $2.85 billion, more than double its profit in the previous year, so 2021. Why are we funding these organizations, these private businesses? Why are we robbing the public exchequer to pay these people for God knows what? 
well, I can't answer that. It makes no sense to me. Uh, as a taxpayer, I find it abhorrent. Uh, but then I find all the stuff abhorrent because I'm a open market man. Uh, I prefer competition to drive um, efficiency in businesses. Uh, it doesn't need government legislation. Uh, that's, in my opinion, predicated on many falsehoods around climate uh, to to give these privileges to corporates. But as we unbundle in our ESG discussions, Jasper, it's not surprising all this sort of stuff is happening because crony capitalism, corporate cronyism is uh, alive and well. I might be old and I'm showing my age here, but I seem to remember there used to be a time when the Greens used to rave and rant about private businesses getting too close to the government. You know, whatever happened there? Well, I think they're showing their true colours. <laughs> they're not really green at all. No. Uh, they're falling into the red bed. But <laughs> this is, we, have, we have paid $140 million to a company whose owner in 2022 made a profit of $2.85 billion. Yeah. But on the other hand, uh, you know, I'm not defending that. Uh, $140 million just rolls off your tongue like it's six months now. I mean... If you analyze that 1% and put it through to the, all the New Zealand emissions and they got the same privilege, I think it comes to around 30 billion. So, because it's 300 million all up with the company putting in so much itself. So, it would be around 30 billion to um, cover all our emissions profile. But see, again, that just that just doesn't make any difference to people. They, they treat 30 billion, you could say 30 trillion today to people, and it sort of doesn't matter because they have no sense of value anymore on it. You know, there are there are things that are good for the community. In smaller areas where I live, there are pools and there's community organizations that are constantly applying to every single fund that opens for two grand, five grand, ten grand to keep community pools, community libraries, community golf courses, all of these open running. And those are places which which really need those. And at times, you know, you you feel, I mean, I, I can't help but look at the disparity here. 140 million of public funded largesse. Meanwhile, there are things, small clubs, social clubs, everything just closing down. It seems, I agree. I agree. And my counter to that is uh, if governments and local governments of the day left the money in the producers and the community's hands to a greater extent and delivered value from the tax and rates uh, appropriately, which is dealing with core business that the market isn't going to perform, the other private sector isn't going to going to give. These grants and uh, handouts that are desired from small community entities probably wouldn't have to happen. It's that we're being, it's being taken from us and then someone feels virtuous and kind giving it back. And of course, there's a dead weight loss on the way through, you know, the admin handling. So much is lost in that way. I, I say lower taxes and leave the money in, and rates and leave the money in the community. Exactly. Stop stop robbing us of this. This mm. uh, I could go uh, on and on, but I think we should move uh, on. Well, I think it's uh it's yeah, I've talked about this for as long as I can remember. So how have I made any differences in difference? Is there any difference around the society that I live in? No, it's got worse over my time. So uh, what is that? It's We talked about it previously. The whole bureaucratic system in this country is out of balance. There is no way society is getting value for money out of any of our uh, 
tax and ratepayer, yeah, they're not getting adequate value. I shouldn't say getting no value. We call them getting value, but it's not adequate value. And so, uh, yeah, we need, if anything needs a damn reset, it's it's government costs and local government costs. Mm. So there was an, another interesting article there that I really liked uh, Alan Barber's article about red meats looking tastier all the time was the headline. And of course, we got into a bit of grief about this a few years ago, a few weeks ago, when I talked about um, Bear Grylls going, basically the 180 and doing his all meat diet. But, you know, when you look at it in a world scheme of things, meat, this is his article, meat represents approximately 7% of the global food mass but it contributes 11% of the total global food energy and disproportionately more essential nutrients, minerals, and indispensable amino acids uh, acids are involved in meat compared to other products. So, yeah, for all the deriding of of the meats, and that includes pork and poultry, um, you know, I think common sense says a good amount of red meat, not... You know, I've been to South America and I've seen how much red meat those people eat. I can't eat that much red meat. But um, horses for courses and uh, you know, eating meat isn't a bad thing. Like we've been told for years, it is. Um, I encourage our listeners to just eat a sensible amount of meat, especially some red meat as well. <laughs> and I don't yeah. have anything to sell. I've got no conflict of interest now. I don't own any animals. So... <laughs> It's Neither do I. I, I. In fact, people have told me at times, you know, you're a farmer, you speak about this. I've often had to clarify, I'm a farm worker. My husband and I, we don't own a farm. We don't own stock. I'm just a farm worker. But I, I, I know what puts the roof over my head and puts food on my family's table. And uh, there's this saying in India you know, that says, you know, you don't literally, I'm going to murder it while translating, but it says you don't make a hole in the plate you eat out of, roughly <laughs> translated. It's very good. Interestingly, it, it, his article he mentions in his second last paragraph, the demand for red meat from New Zealand will not decrease, which places a responsibility on the government to ensure agriculture can continue to operate without unreasonable constraints, while at the same time investing in new farming technologies and methods that minimise its contribution to global warming. Well, that last bit gets me. But anyway, I always said it's the government's job to do open corridors to trade and not put obstructions in our way. Don't say we're going to tick a box on a green credential. That is rather subjective and up for interpretation and gives rise to a massive compliance regime in New Zealand. We don't need... Um, bureaucrats saying to enter this market, uh, you've got to do X, Y, Z, just get the corridors to trade open and let us do the trade. Let the owners of the products do the trade. And, you know, that comment from the right, the author here, um, using new techno- new farming technologies and methods that minimise its contribution to global warming. Oh. Um, it's just that last bit, he didn't need to add it. Just do a talk about efficiency. Talk about efficiency, efficiency of um, food production and efficiency of transportation and perhaps refrigeration or whatever you do. We didn't need that damn little extra called global warming in there, which is everywhere you look. It always comes in and it just shows you how the psyche of people that uh, yeah, are writing documents, it just it just gets in their, in their parlance. It's part of the course. Anyway, 
that's my rant for the week. Are you sure you're done, Don? Well, I thought it was a good story over the page about Bambi. I thought that was a really good story. Sad for the for the owner of the farm who, in the mid twenty twenty one mid twenty one uh, floods, mm. it wasn't mid twenty one. It was early, wasn't it? It was February March, yeah. um, but Canterbury floods. Yeah, and um, a guy Daryl Butterick lost a lot of his farm with the river that just moved out of its normal path and uh, took out his deer farm. But there was a good little story in there where Bambi was a pet family pet deer and she was able to bring quite a few of the deer that had escaped home aside i'm sure they got helicopters and others to you know to to round up mm-hmm. but um yeah it's it's tough when you see a fence go down it's a two wire fence and a flood but when you have a deer fence or any netting fence uh, i have to say to you that is a hundred times worse it gathers every bit of debris and um you, you get a whole lot more problems. Uh, so my heart goes out to those people and that any flood actually, that's uh, I only ever had a couple in my life and I hated them uh, tidying up stuff out of fences and picking up fence posts. Anyway. He had, the farmer did have a grass, didn't he, against the regional council for shingle? Yes. yes. Yeah, and that's going to be a story I think we need to talk about one other day, uh, Jasper, is that there's many councils around this country that are not doing what, local knowledge says they should do, which is um, sort of pull the shingle to the right place. I know that people would say that's modifying a river water course or whatever. Yeah, sadly, water courses modify themselves. If you don't help them, they will do it anyway. But, you know, it sounds like, and some of my colleagues up in the Otani area in Hawke's Bay, uh, sounds like there was some river management issues there. Uh River management issues here in Mid Canterbury. I know there's river management issues in Southland, so uh, we need to have a discussion about how that can be managed a bit better and get some people on to talk about the reality of regional councils not willing to tackle um, shingle buildup in rivers, causing that would floods. Seem to be to be the most. I mean, you can. Keep talking about you know climate change and all of that, but that would seem to be to be practical things that one can do. That's within our control. And, and, and you know, there's flood banks going in, and sometimes perhaps they're being overbuilt if they actually just did some in-river works. Mm. Um, I I used to have a farm in uh, the Selwyn River catchment in Canterbury, and I never forget speaking to one of my neighbours who was saying that. Um, and you hardly ever see water in the Selwyn River when you cross it on Main Highway 1. But he was talking about the cross-section of the river and the shingle build-up over his life was measured in hundreds of thousands of tonnes of shingle had come down that river and sort of built up and built the, the river up that looked to be almost higher than the road in places. Uh, you know, it's but no one does anything about it. No one will touch that Uh it's it's really odd. Um, and he also said to me that a lot of the water is going through that shingle. You don't see the water that's going through it uh, at, in the summertime, but there is water underneath going through the shingle. So I don't know. I mean, uh, it's, local knowledge is a big issue. And I think some of this will become topical as we start talking more, as Grant Robertson said, uh, get used to the word manage retreat and a few other things. Oh, and isn't that uh, another yeah, it, it looks like it's going to be milked by a lot of people, but we always talk about adaptation. Mm. You know, farmers and societies actually have adapted over time to whatever 
the conditions of the environment give them at the time. Uh, it doesn't matter whether it's earthquakes, volcanoes, floods, you know, whole societies have been wiped out by not doing, uh, not moving um, when things get in their way. But we, and we've got the, we've got the ability to adapt. Sorry to finish that. We've got the ability to adapt. And that's where the money should be deployed, adapting to real conditions that are uh, in front of us. And of course, 150 years ago, a lot of New Zealand um, towns and cities started on rivers because that's where shipping lanes sort of were where you get boats up. So we didn't build in the smartest places, but we've managed it so far. Uh, there's been lots of floods and lots of mayhem for people and lots of heartache for people. But, you know, in the end, we've ad adaptation is number one in any society. The term mitigation just means mega dollars. I was about to say the same mitigation, mm -hmm. how much, you know, I can just see a whole lot of more gravy trains starting their consultants reports uh, and whatnot, all to no avail. And I want the managed retreat from those people. <laughs> That's what I want. <laughs> they're, they're, let's hope they they retreat a bit, but they won't. I mean, there's a there's a job scheme in there for for a lot of engineers and consultants. So mm. anyway, rural news uh, seems to be talking about Tiwaka Kanoa being dead in the water. Well. It, that seems to be the case, but then there was one headline there that, uh, and hey, Waka Ekanoa for listeners is the sort of process that was going to tackle uh, ruminant emissions on farms, and farmers were going to subscribe to paying a tax uh, on their emissions. Yeah, they were basically going to say to the government, tax us because we'll be happy. Uh, well, that wasn't going to happen as long as I've been around. Um, but the headline on page four uh, claims that far some farmers still want to be involved in an HWEN process. Now, this article came from Southland, and I did a ring around around mates that have been in these meetings, and there was only one uh, meeting that this may have come out of this in inclination to believe that uh, HWEN should continue. And sadly, it came from an area where the former Beef and Lamb New Zealand chairman resides. So, um, yeah, a bit sad that the headline's like that, but, you know, that's how it goes. That's how it goes. Because most farmers most farmers don't want a bar of it that I speak to now. They've wised up. They were lazy. They were comfortably numb, as I keep talking about. Mm. But they're wising up to it now. And in this next week, uh, late next week, uh, an American astro uh, uh, atmospheric physicist is coming to New Zealand, Dr. Tom Sheehan. And I just ask people to get around the country and the, there will be some, yeah, we will advertise uh, where he's going to be. I know Groundswell have already advertised where he's mm. going to attend and speak. And we hope that New Zealand media gives him a fair shake of the stick. Uh, based on mainstream media, we know what's going to happen. <laughs> we, we know the usual suspects are going to try and uh, take him apart and humiliate him. But, uh, you know, New Zealand's future is still with agriculture in a big like way. Like and, and this attempt by others to sell us out into a taxation scheme um, has got to be, the boil's got to be lanced. And I hope uh, Dr. Tom Sheehan's going to lance it well and good in the next few weeks. It's interesting how regardless of, you know, which country it is, Agriculture seems to be under attack the world over, but there's different means. So Sri Lanka went all organic and went bust. 
and India has been bailing it out. The United Nations Food Program has been bailing it out because you're not going to use fertilizer, not going to use any urea. And uh, yeah, that was one way. In Over in Europe, so the EU Parliament, I believe, of the funding for the Dutch government to buy of 3,000 farmers with the them having to sign off that they will not be farming again, them or, you know, one more generation. Out here, it's us going to this methane world first taxation regime. More than one way is to skin a cat, but it all comes down to the same thing, doesn't it? Well, it, it does. And on top of that, the Irish farmers are being told that they'll have to diminish their herd by the tune of 200,000 over three years. And I just read a couple of days ago that John Kerry was uh, the, the American trade in, oh, sorry, I've forgotten his name, is he the, not the Secretary of State? Anyway, John Kerry, former Vice President, mm. he's busy saying um, that American farms are going to have to start exterminating cattle as well. So uh, all for false, all on a falsity, really. Uh, once we under, uh, the world understands that this methane and nitrous oxide issue isn't one, mm. it's a non-issue, mm. all the stuff to that, that you say if farmers seem to be the, the, the sector that's being beaten up on around the world. That's true. It's because we're such a minority. It's easy for the majority to exert uh, uh, their, their feelings through the um, executive governments of the countries, um, what they want. And, you know, the minority gets hammered. That's what's happening here. Yeah, just the minority that uh, last year May Ending May 22, accounted for 82% of the exports. It's, it's regardless of you know whether you're farming or not, you cannot, and I, I will very emphatically say it, you cannot escape the impact of what this is going to have on the rest of New Zealand. Well, Every one of us will pay the price, regardless of whether you know next year my husband and I remain farming or not. Each one of us is going to be paying the price. Well, we're already had a massive devaluation. Uh, we've already uh, got high interest rates. Uh, you know, I made it this statement before, and you know, people can lambaste me for all I care. Um, that governments actually like inflation; they actually like it. It gets them out of a hole. So the fact that they've devalued everything you uh, anyone that owns assets in New Zealand has uh, is is nothing new, really. Um, Saddens me, but because uh, I've made the statement as well, Jaspreet, and you haven't been here as long, uh, that <laughs> 45 years of effort, I just feel that it's it's been um, a fair chunk of it's been hurt, been attacked in the last few years. And of course, on top of that, uh, the person that adjudicated over most of it was lauded with a damehood recently. I mean, I, I just can't, I can't understand that. Uh, safe and effective, e eco-anxiety, mental health all around this country, massive debt, fiscal management um, from school kids would do better. Um, in Southland alone, just talking about the mental health aspect, I read an article recently since 2018 uh, on the 15 to 24-year-old age group, uh, there's been a 54% increase in uh, prescriptions for basically anxiety conditions. And a woman gets in damehood. I think it's outlandish, but yeah, safe and effective, single yeah. source of truth. Uh, yeah, 
kiss you got to kiss the feet of these people it seems uh, it just makes you you know aware of what these titles are worth and you it was you John who said once that i came out of my career without getting one of these and i think you'd be proud of that accomplishment <laughs> oh no i i think i said it something similar to that what i've said <laughs> and i don't want to under look there's good people get uh, yeah of course rewarded for good reasons i've and i was i read it on a facebook post a few weeks ago that someone put up uh, the same that i've often said if you're paid well in your job why should you expect uh some sort of royal honor to me a royal honors should be for those that have done absolutely great community things at no cost to the to the community they've done it you know in a voluntary sort of work but you look back through it's not been the way it has been but this post sort of indicated what i've always thought that yeah you should um if you've been a volunteer you should be lauded for the good work you do because volunteers are the yeah they are community lifeblood really they really do put a lot in and no, i went to um my grandson's rugby game this morning yeah uh, sorry yesterday morning and uh, it was unbelievable. There was a guy, a Maori guy, probably 40, with these little ripper rugby kids, and he was just so good. I mean, it gets nothing but 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 joy out of what he was doing. I'd rather give him a Queen's or, or a King's Award than someone who's destroyed the country. I know that's harsh because there'll be a lot of our listeners think that former Prime Minister was great, but, you know, I'm just one person, so. And it is your show. You can say this. <laughs> but yeah, destroying farming on one hand, on the other hand, a couple of pages towards the end, they go about career pathways for job seekers. We had this a couple of years ago. It was this much lauded program called Go Dairy. And they rolled out, you know, all these courses and quick starts, and there'll be a set of rain gear and everything and come along. But what are we doing, you know? Taking with one hand, giving with the other. The people within this sector are getting burnt out at a very fast rate. And as you just said, Don, the mental health statistics, they do mm. show something. Yep. Uh, there's lots of busybodies getting in the way of, uh, well, you never used to have to hold the hand of everybody, but now it appears that you do have to hold the hand of everybody and you have to fill out some forms and you have to feel that you've, you've done the right process. Well, the old process used to work fine, but. Uh, I mean, I'm sounding again like a broken record, but these busybodies just need to go out and get real jobs and uh, and make sure that their productivity might, I don't know how they assess their productivity, actually. I just don't. Because uh, as a farmer, I know that you know, productivity is effectively doing more or the mm. same with less. Mm. And, and I don't see how that's happening with any of these jobs. And interestingly, um, you know, this, the big field days are coming up the end of this week. And, uh, you know, tens of thousands of people go there. In fact, about 100,000, I think. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's a massive cost to the um, people that go there, massive cost to uh, everyone else that attends. But it's it's like a big a big fear and people enjoy themselves. Um, I've never quite understood why they do the assessment of how many millions of dollars worth of trade have been done when all that trade could have been done just fine by just ringing up and buying the tractor. I don't know why you have to go to a field days to get a tractor or a ute or order it. 
doesn't make any sense anymore to me. I mean, I've been involved in it and I've thought about it. It was a great time at the field days mm. uh, when you're not working at it. And most of my time I was working at them and they're really hard days. But actually, um, they boom, make the Waikato economy boom for a time and the Southland field days do the same. But I'm not quite sure how I think that what adds. I, I was in the Waikato and, you know, Mystery Creek used to be sort mm. of, yeah, do you drive the cows and you head off there? I think much of what you're saying is true because farmers will hold back the spending and, you know, go and do it then. There might be a deal or something, but it's just spending which would otherwise have been spent over the rest of the year. You're holding back yeah. for that time. But more than that, I think it's also a showcase for town, meat country. Ah, 100%. And the fellowship is fantastic. Mm. I get that. I get that. Um, yeah. And and I know that um, sometimes you you get farmers when they're in a little bit of a more jovial mood, they're having a holiday, they are an easier touch perhaps. <laughs> that could be the argument. Interestingly, we had um, one of our get, former guests uh, write on page 21, Dr. Doug Edmeads, and he wrote some um, good points about uh, the state of our fresh water in this country and can you try – basically I took out of it, can you trust the data – and he made a um, a point near the end of his article that said um, Fed Farmer's criticism of the 2020 freshwater report was that it was biased, the effect of which was to significantly distort public and political understanding of the national state and trend of water. Now, that's been my issue for years. Show me the empirical evidence put it on a massive data set, take out the outliers and see what's left. And I think you will find that the state and trend of our national water is stable or improving in most places. But that's mm. not what you read. That's not what you read. No. Anyway, good on Doug for putting that in and we'll have Doug Mag on here one day. We will. But I, I think we should... Uh talk a bit more about what we'll be talking with our next guest. We'll be having uh, Sean Rush after this. And Sean is a barrister. He is also an ex-Wellington city councillor. And he's someone who's also, you know, despite his background of uh, law, he's also done a degree, a master's, I believe it was a one-year course on climate change science at the Victoria University of Wellington. And he will be going into this, the whole global warming thing from a perspective of someone who's really, really lived this for a while. But for a layperson, I think I, it's time to sort of set the scene for a few of the terms we'll be using. IPCC, and we've used this term often, it stands for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It was set up, I believe, nearly 1992, was it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. So coming on to, gosh, 30, 30 years. Yeah. And so this was set up and it's its job at that point when it was set up by the United Nations was to sort of create every three years a report on the state of our world. But right from the very first one, it has gotten more and more alarmist, more and more hysterical. Uh, any adjective you'd like to throw in there, Don? Uh, there's a couple of times it's probably been corrupted. Is that mm -hmm. a fair? Is that a fair adjective? 
well, well the climate climate gate emails these were a group of emails that were released about 15 years ago and uh, this was you know right when ipcc was going to talk about its famous now infamous hockey stick graph made by a scientist called uh, michael man an american who incidentally was in auckland uh, railing on about the state of the world in the towards the end of may and he created this hockey stick graph looking at the last 150 just shy of 200 years of uh, the temperatures on earth and declared that just like a hockey stick the curve towards the end was rising very sharply and we are all going to fry very soon and uh, these climate gate emails that were released they sort of showed a contrary there was a contrary opinion within the scientists who were commissioned to that to do that particular ipcc report there's this gentleman now deceased by the name of keith briffer who was speaking about the fact that some of the data he has found is not consistent with what Michael Mann's graph was about. But uh, it seemed IPCC went back to Michael Mann, and ever since then, he is their spokesperson. And uh, I'd say he's made quite a career out of climate alarmism. Well, and plus there was uh, Frederick, I think his name is Seitz, in 1996 yes. was one of the authors of uh, of the one of the, was it AR1 or AR2? And he found that his chapter, uh, had been significantly altered when it came to its final draft, and he was the he was one of the expert, um, what you know, authors, and it was it was doctored before it was released without his knowledge, and he was one of the prime authors. So <laughs> that's the corruption that we've had. It's uh, just one example of it, but there's been plenty of those sort of examples, and of course, the latest one is not corruption. Uh, sorry, we're, we're jumping the gun here, but the IPCC said in its uh, recent reports that the methane um, global warming potential has been overstated by a factor of three to four, completely ignored by New Zealand media until other groups have brought it to the fore, hence why I'm so vociferous about this discussion. Um, but yeah, the all of this IPCC and UNFCCC, it's... Uh, it's been a big machine and there's been lots of papers and there's lots of terms that we've got to get used to. And the one we talk about with Sean will be, I'm sure, our RCP, Representative Concentration Pathway, which is to do with the energy. Uh, you explain it better than me, Jasper, but it's the energy uh, per square metre uh, uh, for, for, for warming or the release of warming into the atmosphere. I think it's like it's like kinetic energy anyway. Mm, so... We'll be talking. There's uh, different scenarios that they use, different models. Yet again, modeling. So RCPs, representative concentration pathway, and one of them, the most uh, outlandish one, RCP 8.5. What it actually stands for is 8.5 uh, watts of energy per square meter of the Earth is being retained. So you know that's where the warming occurs. Certain amount of energy is hitting the Earth. A certain amount is being released and this much is being retained and it's heating us all up. So this one, even the IPCC itself has said is not probable, but we still have this in our domestic policy making because right from the very first IPCC report in 1990, which came underlining the importance of climate change with global consequences and said 
that, you know, we require international cooperation. It led into the UNFCC, International Treaty for Global Warming. And we've all been going down, being herded down this path. And the latest one, AR6 assessment report that was finalized this year, three months back in March. It's a global stock take. We are being told that, uh, what, is, what does Greta say? How dare you? How dare you? So that we are destroying the future of the planet. We just have one planet. But we'll, we'll be talking a bit more about, about this. In fact, quite a lot more about this with Sean Rush. Because he'll come into this with a more uh, theoretical basis behind him. And since he's done a few papers and his experience, because Sean Rush, the ex-Wellington counselor, he's also been a contributor himself to the AR6 on the physical sciences part of this IPCC report. So that should uh, certainly be interesting. Yeah, and I, th I think it's good that he's uh, got a unique perspective, uh, a, new, a unique background to anyone else we've interviewed to date. Uh, we've predominantly focused on perhaps farming and, and uh, scientists that have been involved in farming or genetics or something like that. But, uh, you know, barrister, um, mm. got a history in uh, working with the oil and gas industry. And of course, people will immediately label them. Um, but, you know, look, we got to hear all sides of the story, as we say on RCR. Yep. And, you know, regardless of what you think about climate science, I know it's not the sexiest topic, but this is what is pretty much dominating headlines now, now that COVID is history. We've always spoken about the fact, and Jill and I have spoken about it on our VFF talks, climate change is the linchpin to this whole agenda. And so, you know, it's possibly time to make yourself a cup of tea or coffee at this stage and buckle in. We'll have uh, an hour and a bit with Sean Rush beginning just after this break. Thank you for joining us this morning. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Hello and welcome back to Greenwashed with me, Jaspreet, and my co-host, Don Nicholson. Thank you so much for joining us today. For listeners, our text number is 2057 and our email is inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. Thank you so much for joining us today. Now, I'm very excited to introduce our next guest, Sean Rush. Sean is a barrister. He's also an ex-Wellington city councillor. He's got a master's in petroleum law and policy. You also have a master's in climate science and policy, and there's quite a bit more, but we'll get into it. Welcome, Sean. Nice to be here. So tell us more. I mean, I could actually go into your background. We could head into climate, but let's start from your early background. I believe you're a Napier boy. Yeah, I'm born and bred in Napier, and uh, you know, they say you can take the boy out of Napier and never take the Napier out of the boy. So... Um, and, you know, so Hawke's Bay is still a very passionate place for me. Um, born and bred in Taradale, actually, where the floods were. Um, so mm. very familiar with, with there. A lot of friends, my brother still living there. A lot of friends still there. Um, brought up in a Catholic family. There was uh, three other siblings, uh, older brother, older sister, younger sister. Um, all of them, uh, you know, moderately successful in, in everything they do. I suppose our, our little sister Erin is probably the most successful. She's a, an ex-black fern and uh, um, is uh, quite prominent in the in the Wellington community, not far from where I am. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, fairly ordinary. Uh, you know, uh, dad's a builder. He's eighty next month, and he, he's still building. Uh, mum, uh, mum worked in the seminary on Church Road there, and uh, ironed um, underpants and 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 t-shirts for the students. Um, so she knows all the all the Maris brothers and and priests uh, pretty much in New Zealand, and uh, I know most of them too. And um, and it's, it's lovely to catch up with them from time to time. But uh, yeah, pretty ordinary, uh, nothing unusual. Um, I, I was a reasonably good sports sports person um, in a lot of different sports, um, but I prominently started as a, as a gymnast, I suppose, and made the New Zealand side and in the age group anyway and, and represented the country. The claim to fame actually is I got a 9.9 on the high bar which was uh, those are the days when ten was the maximum score. So, um, so that was that was big talk back in the day. <laughs> and there's always been a little bit of gymnastics uh, gymnast in me. In fact, uh, just the year I got elected to the city council in 2019, I I, I was back in the gym uh, doing uh, thinking about doing a floor routine for a um, a competition and uh, and actually it was it was actually going really well. That the great thing is actually is that the equipment is so much better than it was back in my day, back in the early 80s sort of thing, that uh, although obviously I'm not as I'm not as springy uh, as I used to be, but the floor is. So I was actually getting to do the same tricks that I was doing when I was an international gymnast. And one of my colleagues, actually, Simon Wolf, he videoed me uh, doing a few uh, twists and tur- turns and so forth when uh, that gym actually... Um, it got into a bit of trouble. Uh, I think the lease got uh, terminated and they were hunting for a home. We managed to sort them out. So, but yeah, I mean, St. John's College Hastings, Catholic boys' school, played rugby. Um, pretty ordinary. Went to university, studied law. Um, I suppose I, I was a bit unusual in that I I, I was also able to, to crunch numbers and, and use language. Um, so I did uh, maths, chemistry and physics in sixth form. Um, one stage thinking about being a pilot, but uh, in the end decided that law was where I should be focusing, a good public speaker. Um, and then went to, went to university and uh, you know, did my law degree. It was a bit, you know, a pretty average one, really. <laughs> sort of pursued other things, really, anything but academia. Um, came back to, New- to Napier, um, no job. Um, drove trucks for Conroy Removal, so I've been working for them every holidays uh, since I was 14. And uh, and was was started thinking, well, I'm going to do this for a few uh, six months, and only overseas, do my OE, that sort of thing. And then a, a, an opportunity popped up to work for a barrister, uh, criminal barrister, uh, for free. I'd have to do it for free. I thought, well, I'm better off doing that, go and live with mum and dad, and go on the dole, uh, and get some experience behind me. And well, a couple of weeks went by, and, and I'd done some really good research for him. Got a young man off a drugs charge. And uh, Tommy was his name. And uh, anyway, um, he was so impressed that he put me in touch with another law firm and one thing led to another. And there I was sitting in an office as a lawyer uh, in Napier and uh, sort of did that for two and a half years, always felt we'd go overseas. And um, and uh, yeah, yeah, two and a half years later, I'd, I'd saved up a wee bit with a couple of mates and off to San Francisco, we went to play rugby, looked after by the rugby club there, and then I carried on to London. And, uh, you know, I ran with the Bulls and went to the Beer Festival three times uh, and, uh, and uh, worked in pubs. 
uh, did a bit of furniture removals, driving trucks, and then decided, well, maybe it's time to get the suits back out in 1996. And a couple of very short corporate jobs led into one with uh, an oil company. Um, and I was getting paid, I was getting paid £4.50 an hour driving a truck in London. And um, and then I moved into this job and it was paying me £12 an hour. And, and I thought I was the richest man in Wilsdon Green, you know. I was like, well, you know, no more catching bus and all that so that we can do the minicab now. Um, so um, so that was good. And, uh, and it was supposed to be a short-term contract, uh, as these ones often are. I mean, they'd just done an acquisition. They had a lot of paperwork. They needed someone to go through it all um, and, and archive it all. And um, and they were really impressed, and so was I actually. That uh, you pick up these very complicated um, partnership documents and uh, and gas sale contracts and and so forth, and uh, and I understood them very very quickly, um, and um, didn't need people to explain them to me. I, I got them, and so the the general counsel said we'd like you to stay on uh, on a two year contract. I qualified as a UK lawyer. So we're into 1998 now. Uh, come 1999, the oil price was down to $10 a barrel, no pay rises, even for people who had just qualified in the UK. So I went to a um, one of the multinational uh, um, law firms. Uh, I think it was top 12 in London at the time and uh, and worked in their energy and infrastructure group. Uh, did a nine-month secondment to Dubai, working for a small oil company called Dragon Oil. Um, and, um, you know, that was quite an experience, production sharing contracts, uh, project financing, um, and also then came back and got into uh, into railway refranchising, PPP contracts, uh, combined heat and power, blah, 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 all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, and about that time, actually, um, you know, throughout, I suppose, going back to my university days in 1990, we had had a PhD student come and lecture us for four or five lectures uh, about climate change. And so this is 1990. So this is before the treaty had been signed, before the IPCC, all that sort of thing. But here's this PhD student uh, taking us through a moot court in the International Court of Justice against the uh, notional high emitting countries uh, on behalf of a fictional island state that was loosely based on the Maldives that was going to be submerged by the year 2000. And uh, and so that was very interesting. And I, I guess, you know, throughout the 90s, I, I was very supportive of, um, you know, the sort of actions that, that we should be taking, really, to, to decarbonise our, um, our, our industry and, and our planet. Um, and, and didn't really, though, look too much at the underlying science. You kind of think about scientists as being pretty honest and, you know, Experts. what did they come up with, you know, uh, you know, strange sort of conclusions and predictions, um, nothing to be gained for them doing it. And so you kind of just sort of accepted it. Um, and I guess, um, you know, we, well, we know the Maldives didn't sink uh, and actually most of the Pacific Island nations are getting bigger is the latest um, study on that. But, um, yeah, I guess uh, getting into about 2003, 2004, I, um, I started thinking about coming back to New Zealand and I, I, I wanted to come back, but I was working in a very specialised industry. Uh, there was next to nothing happening in New Zealand. There was two or three companies, Shell, OMV and Todd, they all had lawyers. Um, 
And because my background was as a general practitioner in Napier, I didn't have that sort of uh, ability to pop, you know, just walk into one of the big law firms. Um, you know, I did interview for a couple of them and, you know, that was all good. But anyway, but but importantly for me, I started thinking, well, you know, New Zealand's got a, an elevated consciousness around environment. And is the industry that I've been working in good for the planet? Can I look my family and friends in the eye and say, look, on balance, I think this industry is good for New Zealand and, and good for the planet. And so that's when I really started uh, challenging um, myself to, to get to grips with uh, the science as best I could. You know, I'm a smart guy. And I sort of thought to myself, well, you know, if a smart guy like me um, can't get his head around what's going on, then there's, maybe there's something that's not going on, for you know, if you know what I mean. Um, if it can't be explained simply so that you can easily understand it, then then why is this there's often that there's a that's a red flag, right? Yeah. Yep. And um, you know, so I was a lawyer in London and um, you know, I saw Al Gore's movie come out in Convenient Truth, and and the thing that troubled me was that um they tried to play it in schools in, in the UK, and someone took them to court um and got an injunction uh preventing it because uh, it told a story that was, you know, partly based on really good science, but actually had quite a, a number of exaggerations in it. And the sea level uh, predictions were one of them. And being the lawyer I am, you know, you pull out the High Court case and I, I read through it and I went, wow, you know, this guy's just won the Nobel Prize and, and he's actually told... Um, a lot of whoppers, actually. He, he actually won the, I think Al Gore won it with the Indian at that time who was heading no. IPCC, Rajendra Pachori, at that, that year. And you wonder these people. But I, what you just said, Sean, you said about, you know, that a smart guy like you and not being able to understand it simply. And Don, you've often said, Don, that unless they can explain simply, I'm not interested. It just means they themselves don't have it clear. They're trying to confuse us. And that's how I've um, assessed it. I mean, over time, I've read as a layman many, many papers from government servants, local authorities, uh, university lecturers, and it almost seems that most of them write in a deceptive way that is designed to confuse. Now, you're, you've been trained in the law, so you'll understand this a bit more than me, but I find uh, language uh, from from professionals really awkward to decipher and so uh interestingly just building to where we are today in this interview um you've talked about your gymnastic career i had visions of um nadia Comaneci and the, the, the modern springboards imagine how good she would have been sean um but you've had a lot of career gymnast gymnastics really career springboards to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and and what you're building up to, and I know you haven't finished this uh, this um, timeline, is that you haven't started into this with no experience elsewhere. You've 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 learned and experienced the world before you got to this. Uh, as I call, wrote it down, the elevated consciousness. And I thought that's a great line because most of us had that elevated consciousness probably from the 80s on when environmentalism sort of came into the national sort of parlance. But there's two ways it's gone. One is um, 
very costly, uh, very uh, awkwardly presented in a, in, in a way that has no evidence behind it. And I'm sensing the way you've talked about it so far, you're an evidence-based man and that's how life's got to be. And, you know, all power to your arm. So look, sorry to interrupt. I just, uh, I, I figured, yeah, at that point, you've you've made a decision, this elevated consciousness, you've, you've watched Al Gore, you've... Um, decided like a lot of us that there's something screwy here so i'll let you continue from there yeah so i was in london at the time and um but an opportunity came up with my company it was a canadian company called petra canada whose first president interestingly was a guy called morris strong who actually set up the whole un environmental program in the early 1970s and he would have been a fam- fabulous guy to meet. Uh, I've got his book, actually, I must read. But anyway, um, I went off to Calgary for a couple of years, uh-huh. and uh, some of my good friends in, in Calgary are very uh, are very environmentally um, conscious, um, you know, to the point of being Green Party equivalent, if you like, uh, voters, I, I should imagine. And I actually remember we had to do a, a lucky dip sort of uh you know, prize thing, bring along a, a cheap something you've got and we'll um, hand it out. So I brought along Al Gore's book, An Inconvenient Truth. I read it. I thought I'll put that in. And what do you know, my my green mate, Harvey, he he, he gets it. So anyway, um, but what I, what I, I guess, um, you know, and I was on a very good fast track to a successful career by this stage. I was the European Council for Petro Canada. Um, we had about seven or eight producing oil fields, um, a significant number of barrels, about five times what New Zealand produces right now. I was doing an LNG uh, prospect, prospective LNG plant in Moscow. Um, in fact, I was just chatting to a guy today that I actually flew back. It was my mum's 60th birthday, and I flew back from Moscow to London, through to Hong Kong, down to Auckland, and surprised her for her birthday, and went went home on the Monday. Um, that's kind of the sort of lifestyle I was I was I was um, living, and uh, and things were going very well for me career wise. And I had a lovely English girlfriend. She came with me to Canada, and I was put through my the ringer, um, given all the big jobs, the tough jobs, the ones that the deals that had stalled, and uh, and I I feel like I kind of knocked most of them out of the park, and. Um, but still, nevertheless, I was always looking for that route back to New Zealand. In fact, I flew back from Calgary quietly with my partner and was interviewed by Solid Energy uh, by Don um, Don Elder uh, for a general council role in, in Christchurch. So um, I was always looking. And uh, funny enough, I had, had, the, had the interview and the next day I was going to meet with Don and he said, look, Sean, I've just had a town hall meeting. Uh, the GFC has happened. Uh, we don't have any projects. There's no job for you, <laughs> which was probably a, a bit of a godsend, really. So uh, me and my partner went back to, to Canada. We finished out the two years. We split up after that, um, sadly. But, you know, she's much happier now, <laughs> I suppose. So, And we still stay in touch. She's a geologist, a very brilliant one, actually. Um, so, but... Um, the whole time, I suppose, was still thinking about the, the climate issue. And I got to a bit of a, a stop, really, because you, what, what's the, one of the problems you have as a lay person 
that doesn't have access to the peer-reviewed literature is that it's difficult to locate and read the source of the climate you know, observations and, um, and analysis and so forth. And you end up, you can get yourself you know, bogged down on blog sites and, you know, one blog site says this, another one says that, and, and you sort of go, well, you know, on balance, yeah, it's, you can't take it to the bank, if you know what I mean, right? So you, you can't sort of like read a blog and think, oh, I agree with that because on a personal cognitive bias nature, um, this works for me. Um, and that's something that I've always been very, very careful to, to ensure that just because you, you like what you're reading, um, it still needs to be rigorously tested uh, in, in the usual ways as much as uh, something you don't like. So um, anyway, the, the opportunity to, to come back to New Zealand really arose because of the John Key um, changes in petroleum industry management in New Zealand. And um, I'd, by this stage, I'd, I'd met my wife. We were, we'd been seeing each other for two years. We'd got, we got married in 2012. And she's a Kiwi, uh, ex-oil and gas lawyer too, actually. In fact, it was the industry that brought us together. And um, and I said, I think, I, I flew back for the 2012 Petroleum Conference, um, networked with a few people. She knew all the lawyers that I needed to know. So I met the Todd Group guys, the Shell guys, and some of the big law firms. Um, they were all interested. Nice to network and meet people like that. And, um, and and there was a lot of energy at the conference. It was, and I went back and I said, you know, uh, if I don't get a job, uh, you know, there'll be a job at some point somewhere along this way. And by this stage, I'd already applied for a couple of uh, senior roles, one with contact and one with someone else. can't remember. And I, and I got the feeling that I, I would have got it if I was actually, you know, in the country. So... Uh, as, as a consequence, uh, you know, we went back and, and as it happened, just before I went back for the conference, my dad sent me a photograph of an advertisement in the Dominion, as it was, it was called the Dominion then, uh, from the Todd Group looking for a commercial manager. And I thought, well, I'm not a commercial guy, but I know enough about it. I'd, I had done a master's in petroleum law and policy by this stage, which actually had a lot of um, economics uh, business investment principle, discounted cash flow modelling, uh, all the stuff that lawyers hate. Uh, and it was, it was all distance learning as well. So I, I had to actually knuckle down and figure it all out with itself. But in the end, I actually got a, a distinction with that. And my my thesis, which was a, a 15,000 word essay, um, got, got an A1. I was told uh, it was the only thesis that's ever been awarded the top mark. So um, that really propelled me into the attention of um, the, the politicians um, and uh, senior managers, in, in particularly in this particular area of my expertise. I joined the, uh, the, the think tank, the government industry think tank, um, as being, and I was the only lawyer on it. Uh, everyone else, you know, they're all engineers. So things were going really well. I was retained by the British Secretary of State for Energy to be uh, their advisor on uh, offshore infrastructure and uh, did, a, did a bit of work with them. Um, and, you know, things. I was a partner in a law firm by this stage. The company I'd worked for in Canada, they had merged, shut the London office. I joined a, a law firm and was head of oil and gas, major projects, and depending on who I was marketing to <laughs> at the time. So... Things were going really well, but but you know we we saw children on the horizon, wanted to come back, and um, 
And so we, we made the plunge and I got the job with the Todd group. Now I was so excited. We, we had the long, you know, three month holiday home by Petra for, for Christmas. Um, then um, Thailand as well as it was, you know, stopped in Aussie, caught up with a couple of mates. So anyway, and um I sort of I started uh, with the Todd group, and, and I had a, the first year went really well. The second year, things just seemed to not quite work. I won't go into any more detail than other than to say, I got to a point where I was walking to work as if I was going to the old murder house when I was at school. You know, with the dentist, your legs get all heavy. You really don't want to go, but you have to. And I was going in the other door to avoid seeing my boss. You know, that relationship was getting a bit hairy, and I just thought, look, this is no good. Uh, it's a small industry. Uh, you're the guy, you're the junior guy, and the junior guy always loses. <laughs> and so I, I sort of decided that I'd preserve the relationship while I could, and uh, I'm glad I did. And I left um, and uh, set up my own business. Uh, so that was uh, 2015. And my business is a law legal advisory business. Um, and I very quickly got a job with helping MB on a, a study about bringing Māori into the into the sector. Um, picked up some other clients doing various bits and bobs, but it was a lot of fun. It was quite profitable, and um, and, and then I started thinking, well, well, do I have an opportunity here as part of my business to go back to university and to 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 study climate? And uh, there was a short course put on by Professor Dave Frame at Vic University, and. Uh, it ran for six weeks. It was uh, there were three hour lectures, mm -hmm. um, twice a week, I think, from memory. But it packed in pretty much a half year course into six weeks, and that was over late January to, to February. So it was before the university year started, and it was kind of during that period where all the government people and lawyers and everyone are all on holiday. So, so I did that, and i had a good relationship with davy she was at canterbury university with my wife they they're not friends but they know each other um and, and they have mutual friends in common but what, what struck me the most was that i ended up having more questions after the course than i had before the course and because it was this kind of shortened um process and I'd actually missed the first lecture, the first three-hour lecture, which was on the physical sciences, which I really wanted to get involved in. I sort of um, sort of felt, well, have I missed an opportunity? I've got Dave. Dave actually did a presentation to a, 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 a group that I put together out of my petroleum context, which was very well received. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, what I found was when I really pushed Dave um, in some of the areas that I was – sort of confused about, um, his reactions weren't often that positive. Um, and sometimes he just refused to answer me. And, you know, a pattern emerged that you'd send an email and you'd never get an answer. Um, I, I remember asking questions in class and he said, we, we don't have time for this. Um, and it's probably right, you know, to be fair. Mm -hmm. um, so... What I did learn was more about meteorology and more about IPC policies and processes. Yeah, very good course in that regard, but it didn't really go into the detail I wanted to go into. And um, when the government banned oil and gas exploration in 2018, I, I thought, well, you know, that was the the whole business plan for my business was to service companies coming from outside of New Zealand with whom I had great connections with from my London Canadian days. 
Mm. And, um, and, and obviously make a living doing that. And when they banned oil and gas exploration, well, that was that gone. And, you know, New Zealand's still a pretty small town when it comes to oil and gas. And so um, you're talking two or three companies, all of whom, one of whom I used to work for, they weren't going to hire me. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I, I sort of pondered about what I could do and then said to my wife, how would you feel about me going back to Vic full time? doing James Renwick's course with, with Dave as well. And uh, she said, you know, she was supportive, $15,000. And, you know, uh, it's the time away from work as well, the minimal hours. Um, mm. But, um, you know, she was supportive. And uh, I met up with James. And I said, look, I've got an unusual background in the petroleum sector. And he thought, well, this is really interesting. <laughs> and uh, we had a pretty warm cup of tea and, and a coffee, uh, called a cup of tea and a, and a biscuit sort of thing. And, um, and and that was it. So I signed up. That was 2019, uh, February, and um, started off in the, in the course, one of the course that James and Dave ran was the physical sciences, so modelled loosely on the IPCC working groups. And um, I guess by this stage, I'd already been in touch with the IPCC rep here in New Zealand about, you know, what do you need to do to, you know, I had some questions actually about where certain language had come from because the fifth assessment report had come up with this headline saying that human, human activities have been the dominant cause of, of warming since 1950. And I was confused by that because there wasn't any warming in 1950. The, the global temperatures sort of uh, stagnated, maybe even declined through to about the mid-1970s, and then, then that's when we get the big increases. Um, and, um, and I looked at the, the report, you know, the word search for dominant, and there it is in the summary for policymakers, but it's not in the main body at all. So, so that bothered me, and, and I, you know, the Official Information Act doesn't, doesn't apply um, so I've been liaising with this chap, very, very decent chap, um, generous with his time, uh, I won't name him, um, who was at Ministry for Environment, and, and we'd had a few conversations. Anyway, I mean, I was doing James's course and um, sort of felt, well, well, maybe if I could sort of like, could, could I apply to be on the IPCC and be an expert reviewer? And I did, did make an application, which went nowhere. Um, but part of um, Dave's and James' course, I had to do an essay. And I, I was just going to do a, uh, a bulk standard, you know, it's 5,000 words, knock it off on a weekend. Um, and um, I thought, well, I'll, I'll, I knew about a couple of recent, very interesting papers that had just, just come out. Um, one, one showing that, that, the, um, that the heating from the medium warm period was still affecting the deep ocean and that actually climate models weren't accounting for it, and it could actually mean that uh, half to a third or something like that of the, the so-called model warming is actually coming from below, not greenhouse gases. So that was interesting. And about the same time, uh, uh, another paper from a, a, a very well-established uh, scientist called John Christie. Now, he's a leading sceptic, but without doubt, he has got credibility. He's a NASA medal winner and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, he came out with a paper showing 
that after 20-odd years of measurements using their satellite and with weather balloons, um, they couldn't find the sort of warming that models were sh suggesting should be shown uh, at the top of the atmosphere, a place called the troposphere. So that, that was interesting. I thought, well, might not write about that, but I thought a bit of, well, let's go to the, so the, you've got the, you got the atmosphere, you've got the ocean, but you need to fill in the middle, which is the surface, right? So I figured I'll go to the IPCC report and pulled out the relevant page, page 189, and I'll just say a few words about, you know, what they say in there, and, and this will be all done and dusted, and, uh, and, and I'll be finished by Sunday lunchtime sort of thing. But I started looking at the underlying papers that were, were cited there, and they were actually saying quite different things. Mm -hmm. So one that dealt with the uh, urbanisation of China and the effects that that had uh, on the temperature record was saying that, you know, in their evaluation, uh, about 30% of the warming trend was associated with urbanisation. That is that you've built up your, um, your city around your weather station and that has created, uh, you know, a, a warming effect that's not associated with greenhouse gases. A, a, a secondary finding of that paper was that in the northwest, I think of it, of, of China, where they had built artificial oasis, they found a cooling trend. And that was reported as a secondary finding. But the IPCC actually only reported that secondary finding, saying that these authors had found a cooling trend in northwest China. Didn't talk about the, you know, the, the artificial warming trend that they, which affected the whole rest of China. And I thought, wow, am I reading this right? I mean, I, I had to actually get the paper translated. It was in Chinese. So I had the abstract in English, and I was so floored by what I read that I thought there must be something more to this so I actually paid a hundred bucks to have it translated but no there it was so I, I was quite so you know this is like Saturday evening and I'm down I'm, I'm at my first paper on the surface temperature record and mm. finding that the IPCC hasn't summarized it correctly and I thought, well what are, what are the other paper papers that they're talking about here so the IPCC just to put it in context the IPCC have said that the, the global surface temperature record, which is an accumulation of weather stations like the one in Kelvin and, yeah. and those sorts, um, and it's been built up over about 150 years and uh, started off mainly with just parts of Europe and then it spread to North America and, and, and now it's quite well defined globally. Um, and then the sea surface temperatures were really much just done in, in ports um, back in the, in the 19th century and uh, in the trade routes and were done in pretty unscientific manner, but that was the best information we had. And people have been saying, you know, can we really rely on it? And the IPCC was saying that you can, that, uh, that actually we're comfortable that any of the problems associated with how this the record's been put together and how it's been measured and sites, weather stations moved or, or now in shade or, or vice versa, Um there might be a 10% sort of variation in what the actual is, but it's, it's pretty minor. Yeah. And yet here's this paper in China, significant, because China's really important because it's gone through rapid urbanisation 
yeah. in the in the late twentieth century, right? So, and that's what happened with Europe in the late nineteenth century. So, if it happened in China, then you can guarantee the same thing happened when London went from being a small village to you know to the big city it is. Um, you know, you, you can probably find that there's a, a warming trend that's that's not related to greenhouse gases. So, so that's the importance of this, right? And and I didn't realise it, but actually, this was one of the big discussion items that came out of the the ClimateGate email release. I had no idea, and I'm looking at this going, well, you know, I started reading some of the other papers, and here's a paper that was written by. Um, one of the co-authors is one of the legends in numerical weather predictions. Her name is Eugenia Kalne. And, you know, she's no denier at all. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. She is she is um, the uh, the protege of a bloke called Jewel Charney. Charney was, was legendary in, in numerical weather predictions, and I've studied his work from the 50s. And he actually led a report that uh, Jimmy Carter sponsored in 1979, which pretty much um, is sets out the science as we really know it today uh, with the uncertainty bound, which was you double carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and you'll get somewhere between one and a half and four and a half degrees warming. And the IPCC over time has modified that sometimes in and out, um, but that's kind of where it's at. So so this woman is, is clearly a formidable, respected, credible scientist, along with John Christie, who I mentioned earlier. He was also one of the authors and a couple of others, and and they had done adopted a new technique on how to measure um, urban effects called uh, observation minus reanalysis. I won't go into it, but Mm. they concluded that um, they could explain most of the warming trend over North America in the 20th century by non-greenhouse gas effects. And, and when you look at, the, you can actually look at the comments on the, what they call the second order draft of the report. So there's a first draft that's mm. given to the experts to review. Then there's a second draft, that's the second order draft. And you can look at what the experts commented. And one of them, a guy called Marcel Kroc, who is a Dutch guy, um, he said, well, you need to look at this particular paper because it says, you know, this pretty much the whole trend can be accounted for by non-greenhouse gas effects. Well, and then that was accepted by the IPCC. So sure enough, there it is. Uh, written, the lead author is a guy called Cinnamon Fall, so Fall at all, they call it, 2010. But they just simply said their um, their observations matched their reanalysis. It didn't go into this. What they were, yeah. didn't go into fulsomely the key part of their conclusion. And then I found out that actually Eugenia K. Uh, Kalne had written a similar paper for the prior um, IPCC IPCC. report, which said a similar sort of thing in a different sort of way called Kalne and K. 2004, I think it was. And that had also um, not really had the impact that it should have because the lead author of that particular section wrote his own paper, got it published, and was able to dismiss Eugenia's work um, by referring to his own work. And, source uh, of truth. And by the time it all came about, it was past the cutoff. She couldn't publish a response. She subsequently did. So, you know, it's just kind of like, but, oh, wow, this is, this is really bizarre. So I'm sitting there going, how do I, how am I going to knock all this together? And I've got a day left in, of the thing. I'm emailing James Renwick going, 
I'm just not quite sure what I'm seeing here, James. This is a bit weird, and um, I can't recall actually what he came back with. But in the end, I wrote my um, essay. It needed to be handed in. And you can tell that, you know, the, the opening bit, and there's a nice little diagram of the, the, the Hadley um, circulation patterns and, you know, all pretty stable. And then, then you get to the surface temperature stuff. And I decided that, look, I'm going to base everything that I'm going to write on what I've read and what I've seen, and I'm going to expect to get reward for that. Um, and, you know, and here I am. I've sort of shown and highlighting uh, that the IPC's uh, summary on this particular topic um, it was deficient. And, and I went through uh, an, a number of the... Um, uh, by this stage, a, a thesis had been published which showed up real big deficiencies with the the the, the usual the the go-to temperature record that the IPCC favoured was known as the Hadcrut data set. And what do you know? The lead author of the section dealing with this is one of the authors of the Hadcrut data set. And actually, you know, so you shouldn't you shouldn't have people who are so intimately connected with their work opining on whether someone else's work, which is critical, um, should be accepted and summarised properly. I mean, this is just daft. Isn't it? And yet, across the country, we seem to use IPCC's words as gospel. There is literally no debate. We have a single source of truth. We prefer the Michael Mann's hockey stick. I don't know how many presentations I have, you know, watched, seen, sat through. With each one's going to the same. And there just seems to be, it's almost like, you know, nothing to see here. This is it. Well, we take it at the word, isn't it? Doug? Even even 1996, uh, Frederick Seitz, uh, I've just found out, he um, was one of the authors of, I think, AR2 or AR1. I can't just quite think which one it is. And he realised uh, when it came to the final copy, his um, input and his panel's input had been corrupted. Yep. And we've so only, I've, only, I've only just found that out. Uh, well, I've known about that. Um, the second assessment report. Um, and um, so what happened was there was a, a meeting of the relevant scientists in a place called Asheville in the United States where the final version was agreed. And the final version, when it comes to um, the attribution of human activities to the warming trend. So everyone was agreeing there's a warming trend, but what was it, you know, the cause of it? And the, um, the, the, the draft that everyone signed off on sort of went into basically said, well, we don't really know when we're going to be able to assess whether human activities uh, are responsible for this or not. And, and there are similar sort of um, cautions throughout, I think it was Chapter 9, was, was it? And, um, and anyway, um, that went away with a, a young PhD chap called Ben Center. Um, he was the guy in charge of this particular chapter, and he, along with a couple of guys, including Phil Jones uh, from the Climactic Research Unit, um, redrafted it and um, found that there was a human fingerprint. And my, my recollection is actually the human fingerprint was sulfates from uh, motor vehicles, so it was cooling the planet. And uh, but but you know the headline was there's a human fingerprint. It went around the world. And, you know, global warming is here. It's humanity's fault. But the reality is, you know, you, you, this, is, this is what a, 
one of the tricks that the IPCC plays. They they release um, quite grand um, you know statements, uh, talking points, none of which is peer reviewed. Sometimes it's it's based partly on the science, um, but but it can be quite an extreme version of it. But it doesn't matter because by the time the science actually is then presented and produced, it's months and the story's moved on. No one cares. And so you, you have this process where, and we've seen this in a pattern now, where, where stuff gets leaked to the, the press. Um, and it, it may be it's, um, you know, I remember the last one I think was that uh, it, people were complaining that it was too conservative or something like that, so that got leaked. But on that occasion, um, Don, um, yeah, Frederick, wrote to the, uh, I think it was the New York Times or Journal or something like that, an alleged fraud. I mean, it was all pretty seedy, really. Um, I, I've got, I mean, what, what they say is that, you know, it went through a process whereby we did our own peer review um, and, uh, and, and, and felt that um, we're justified at the plenary, plenary hearing, I think it was, with the bureaucrats and the politicians to change it. And it's it's not really that good practice at all. And it turns out, actually, uh, two or three of those scientists were working on a paper that said the exact opposite. Um, and that got published a year later. That's <laughs> crazy. And, and so just recently, we've had AR6 and we've had the synthesis report and we've had the, um, you know, the summary for policymakers and, and the three, three components. And it seems, if, if my lay understanding is correct, there's a variance between them. They don't all speak the same language. And it's a, so how are the population supposed to trust anything that comes out of, um, you know, if you're going to have a variability of, of responses, how do you trust the process? Um, and just a, as, as a week counter to that, last week I got uh, an email to my to my hand that said uh, an official record of the ice on Antarctica um, it had grown by a factor of X number of thousand kilometers. I think it was 5,700 yep. square kilometers, three, yep. time, three times the size of Stuart Island. I then subscribed to an Australian tip sheet called The Conversation, who had a complete opposite story on the same day. Um, the, the ice uh, melt was just awful and we're going to hell. So, where are we going to get? Um, and I don't, I'm not going to use the way they, they talk about science operating by consensus. We know that it doesn't. Um, but when are we going to get science that is trustworthy? I mean, I think you sound like you've been onto it. So why is it that not everybody wants to have um, integrity and honesty and they, they're willing to put their name to something that is blatantly dishonest? Um, well, first of all, I saw a peer-reviewed journal publication, the European Geophysical Union's um, journal, which published about that Antarctic ice um, gain. Um, I heard something about a, a contrary position, but I haven't seen a peer-reviewed publication showing it. Now, I can't believe that, um, that two diametrically opposed um, observations could possibly happen. But you're right, though, Don, what, what can happen is that, um, you know, they may have been reporting on ice loss of a particular part of um, Antarctica, so the Western Antarctic uh, ice sheet that is melting. And, you know, when you use the big numbers, it sounds catastrophic, but 
you know, when you realise that actually this happens every summer, you know, <laughs> and then it gets, it all freezes back up. Um, and then there's a there's a, a known volcanic influence in the uh, Western Antarctic. And, you know, Dave, my professor Dave Frame reckoned that was a bit irrelevant, but I've had read papers that, that show that it's definitely worth relevant. investigating. So, you know, and that's one of the reasons why I... I'm trying to, um, I guess, mix a little bit of uh, science and politics because the answer is, is politics, Dom? You know, we've, we've got a political movement, uh, multiple agendas, um, all of which have always run way ahead of the science. So, yes, um, we signed up. And in fact, I've got Jim Bolger's cabinet minutes right here um, that signed us up to the UNF. Uh, United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And I was chatting with Jim yesterday about this. And I said to him, well, well, first of all, this was before the IPCC had actually issued a report that said human activity is causing warming and it could get dangerous. So this is uh, a political movement. Who was the vice president? Al Gore. So when you... Don talked about that second assessment report. Its conclusions were critical to, actually, I think it was critical to Kyoto, to getting a deal on Kyoto. And I traced through um, how the, um, as best I could, how the um, conversation went from we don't really know to um, there's a human fingerprint and what I saw was correspondence from uh, a scientist from Washington, from the, the you know, United States government, um, wanting to see changes um, that, uh, that, you know, were changes in the main body that reflected the summary that Ben Santa had written, understandably. And so, you know, and, and so I also have a nice image of Bill Clinton um, giving due credit to uh, Al Gore, who brought Kyoto home. So, you know, without doubt, these political, um, you know, machinations going on. I mean, as an energy lawyer, energy is political. You know, mm. they reckon that uh, Patton would have taken Berlin if he hadn't run out of petrol six months before the Russians got there. If Hitler hadn't have gone for Stalingrad but went for the oil fields and in Azerbaijan, things could have been very different. Energy is power. Um, and, and of course, if you're talking about restricting or making affordable energy more expensive, that is also power um, and it's political. Um, but, and, and the funding, uh, I, I've seen recent reports, our Ministry for Environment has doubled its funding in the last few years. Um, you've got regional councils um, championing climate change because it gets them funding. You have NIWA being asked to do reports for regional councils and city councils and, and others as well, and they get funded not to tell us that everything is fine. Well, I'm not, and I, I have to be very careful here. I'm not saying that the scientists uh, are, are doing anything untoward here, but what we find, I find, is that... Um, selective quotations are taken out of these reports and are then publicised and pushed as a narrative in order that these 
you know, so the last one I saw from Greater Wellington Regional Council on climate extremes was actually fairly balanced. Um, you know, I mean, at one extreme, at the, at the worst emissions pathway possible, um, South Wairarapa is going to have the same sort of uh, temperature and environment as Northland, one of the great producing regions of New Zealand. I mean, is that it? You know, kind of, but, but man, you know, I couldn't, uh, you shouldn't underestimate the ability of press reporters or press comms staff to create controversy. And I think that the headline picked up one extreme prediction that might happen west of the Rumatakas. Mm. And, and that was bang, and I, you know, Greater Wellington's seeking funding from government. So, you know, it's big business. Um, and the scientists are really, I think, really are stuck in the middle. Um, I mean, not, I think there are scientists who are also, I mean, Professor Frame um, did confide in his class that, you know, earth scientists by their nature are likely to have uh, a, a high elevated level of environmental consciousness <laughs> mm. and will want to want to do good things for the planet. And, uh, you know, so there's a, a cognitive bias there, perhaps. Um, but, you know, the reality is that um, we, we use climate models and there are ones, ones that say not much is going to happen and there are ones that say that all sorts of bad things are going to happen. Well, what do you think ends up being published um, in, in, the, in the normal discourse? And, and you know, you can't... The, the press are part, most, most of the mainstream media are part of a international uh, cartel, if you like, of, um, of uh, reporting uh, where they all share their own stories that, that are local so that you continually have a, a news feed of somewhere in the world where, you know, currently it's Canada and New York. So that, that all gets sort of shared around and everyone can show it and, you know, we... Um, I'm sure that the cyclone Gabrielle that went, you know, that would have gone viral. So, you know, and, and you sort of, I wrote a, an op-ed, one on Gabrielle and one on um, a, a development here in mm. Wellington by the, which is in Shelley Bay, they call it, um, very, very um, controversial for a lot of reasons. And uh, and I wrote, I, I felt that as a the decision to, let that development go ahead was a council decision that I was part of uh, the body that made that decision. And I felt that with that behind me and the fact that I was an expert reviewer for the IPCC and I had a master's that I would be able to write a response to a, uh, an op-ed that uh, one of the professors at Vic University had put, put together on sea level rise and, and how bad everything's going to be. And I wrote a very careful, measured one, saying that the Wellington City Council uh, engaged with a, a lot of experts, and you know, um, but the sea level rise claims are, are, are pre pre premature uh, and, um, and you know haven't passed peer review. So there was sort of a double-edged thing. But anyway, couldn't get anyone to publish it. Just uh, you know, I think it was the uh, one of the one of the mainstream media guys. That actually, was a news hub. They had published this chaps. Um, op-ed and I'd done a response within a day and then had taken away and said, well, this looks, looks interesting, Sean. And within an hour, I came back and said, oh, we, you know, we're all tied up now, the news cycle, blah, blah, blah. And <laughs> it, it also seems like, you know, with the whole media code of conduct and when they got this uh, 
what was that? Journalism fund, public interest journalism fund. Between various conditions, there was also this condition that they're going to show this one particular side of the climate narrative. That's in one of those conditions there. So, oh, is it? Yep, it is. So right. that's I, can't uh, know that. I I am not surprised you haven't uh, got much traction there. But Sean, I am, uh, and for our listeners, just a reminder, we are speaking with Sean Rush, ex-Wellington councillor and barrister. Sean, uh, looking at the IPCC uh, AR5 report, you know, but they're talking about, I think uh, David Frame would have been part of this. Uh, they've spoken in the context of New Zealand, precipitation is likely to increase in western regions in winter and spring. This is chapter 14. But the magnitude of change is likely to remain comparable to, nat- to that of natural climate variability throughout the last century. This, yep. What does so, this actually even mean? So they can't distinguish between the variability? Uh, and, and, you know, a um, couple of things on that, Jesper. Thanks for raising that. Um, I got in a little bit of trouble with my professor um, uh, and Vic because we were encouraged to write a submission to the uh, Environmental Select Committee dealing with the net zero carbon bill. Mm-hmm. And I sort of like thought, like, I've got better things to do. And I thought, oh, I'll, I'll whip a couple of pages together. I've, I've got a dictaphone. I've got uh, a, a remote secretary types these things up for me. So mm-hmm. I've got to whip someone off. And, and I included... Um, some of the issues that I'd raised in that essay that I, I mentioned earlier. And um, I also went into the um, uh, some of the, that, that particular statement. I quoted it, and, uh, and, and the history of that actually is that Dr Andrew Tate, who's the head of MIWA, he was in charge of writing the New Zealand bit. So this has come from MIWA, and I've okay. heard this before, and it's written there in stone. In fact, um, my professor, James Rembick, who's just had his book released, he's basically saying the same thing. Um, but he's very careful to, of course, you know, be um, measured about the, the knock-on effects of other countries and immigration coming into New Zealand and, you know, New Zealand will be a sitting duck, you know, uh-huh. interesting stuff. And, and, you know, he might have a point, but in terms of the actual climate, it's not going to... You know, break into something disastrous, you know, that we can't manage. I mean, we'll never get as much rain as um, as Taiwan, and yet Taiwan gets by just fine, right? You know, and Napier will we'll never be as warm as Napier and Wellington. What do you think that is? Greenhouse gases? No, topography. Some I mean, when I look at it, it's as simple as that. In summer and autumn, it is as likely as not that precipitation amounts will change. As likely as not. So, yeah. so, what so, exactly? I don't really know. Yeah. So, I mean, I we were jumping around a wee bit, but mm. I mean, we're, we're what the scientists will say, and, and quite rightly say, is that their climate models are pretty good. And I sort of go, at what? Um, <laughs> the the warming trend, the warming trend has been um, traditionally it has been in the lower quartile of the modelled trend. Uh, and I put that into my um, submission as well. Uh, I just posted the um, the IPCC's graph that came from the fifth report, and said, you know, it's it's actually you know right at the bottom of the the lower quartile. Um, and so, you know, and, and this is not really, really controversial. This is the graph that the consensus said. And anyway, I mean. Uh, uh, when I became a city councillor, 
that report, that submission got recycled and, and was being thrown at me as, you know, as evidence of my climate denial. And, you know, I just, because at the time I was, I'd just become a public figure mm. and, and I just, I just froze. Honestly, I just didn't know what to do. And I, I'd totally forgotten what I'd written, but all I was getting was, you know, this guy from the, the Dominion Post was was texting me and ringing me and like wanting to get an answer and and I'm sort of going oh my god and like I had to actually sit an exam that morning and this chap I won't say his name from the who I get on really well but right now now <laughs> but he said oh you know what we'd really like to do is um, interview you with a camera and I'm sort of going oh god I said look we're not going to do this uh, I've got an exam at nine thirty it's going to go for three hours. Um, Interestingly enough, the uh, the examiner of that uh, exam was the fellow who, who wrote the the criticism. But anyway, I mean, so and I, I rang up a, a friend of mine. She's in the sort of um, in comm space, and um, I said, "What do I do?" And she said, "Look, you, there's no point having a public argument with a, an expert like um, like the chap that I uh, I was referring to." So, and I could see that, and I was. I was still learning, you know. I mean, you know, you, you you kind of evolve as you learn. So, but after things had calmed down a wee bit, I realised that actually some of the things he said didn't stack up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'd use this expert, you know, IPCC chart graph, um, and, you know, it was, I didn't think too much of it. Well, I didn't know that that chart actually gets periodically, annually gets updated. And so he'd, he'd said, oh, yours, your Sean's chart's dated. Uh, if you have a look at the uh, a more recent version, um, you can see that actually the warming trend is, is right in the middle of the models, and, 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 it, and it showed that. But funnily enough, his chart cut off at 2016, and yet this was 2019. And I sort of went, well, 2016 was a big El Nino year. That that's, uh, spiked all the temperatures. And sure enough, the 2019 version showed that the temperatures were back down into the quarter. And I thought, you know, once again, another one of those, am I seeing this right? And then there was another comment made. I'd, I'd sort of pointed out that the Little Ice Age actually, you know, had quite a big temperature variation. It, it took global temperatures down. And one, you know, peer-reviewed publication that's been well regarded by the IPCC suggested that it was caused by an Atlantic ocean two degree um, drop in temperature which is massive well, it's massive and and so I, I i put that in there and and the comment came back that well the little ice age was a regional event and i've heard this before but i know that the ipcc defined the little ice age by it being a global event and i'd sort of like liaise with my supervisor and i said well this is what the IPC say. And then I found out that he'd actually authored a paper about the Little Ice Age in New Zealand. I was furious, absolutely furious to actually find that. And so when I talked to him about it, he goes, well, yeah, they kind of, I didn't quite mean it that way. I meant that um, uh, it, it had varying effects around the world, which is absolutely right. And if that's what he had said, that would have been fine. But actually, he said it was a regional event, made me look like I didn't know what I was talking about. Mm. So, so, so you go on. 
so I was just going to say, uh, we're, you know, we're, we're an hour into this interview. Uh, we'll have to sort of move it along onto some other topics that we need to talk about desperately. But isn't it interesting? The, the, the mere layman Don hears all this, and there must be hundreds of Sean Rushes out there trying to get the truth in front of people, trying to say this stuff's been sort of tainted or, or embellished for effect. And yet we've got, as you talked about earlier, politicians who are succumbing to the noise for political effect. Um, how the hell are we going to stop this? Because it's going to eat us alive uh, financially. Is it? Is it that a huge credit crunch um, just fixes everything? And we have a huge economic meltdown and this stuff goes away? Because one thing you've talked to me to us tonight about that really sticks with me is about energy security. And and I link it to cost. If you can't give plentiful and cheap energy to your country, you're seriously um, diminishing its um, capacity. And uh, I think we're way ahead of the market. That's just my opinion. But how do you think we're going to um, get this uh, this correction? And and while you're thinking of that, uh, we do need to move on to the RCP and SSP story because I know um, we're vitally interested in that. So. Yeah, a couple of things. How do you assess how we can get this correction through the political machine? Well, I mean, there's only one political party that's actually asking questions and, and inviting people to ask questions about the science. That's the ACT Party. Um, I think, though, that people are starting to wise up to the fact that we've just given $140 million away to a, a, a an Australian steel manufacturing company. Um at a time when um, we're laying off staff at Victoria University. Go figure. And we're giving it to a company that uses coal in Australia. Uh, well, not just that, but they, they shut down the electric furnace yeah. that was operating uh, there when they bought the asset. Uh, they shut it down, started using uh, iron sands instead, which meant they had to use more coal. And now, now they've, they've just conned the New Zealand taxpayer out of $140 million to do what they should have done in the first place, which is kept the electric arc first. Yep. You know, it's, it's madness. So, you know, I think, um, you know, Kiwis, and I'm certainly in this boat as well, Kiwis want to do their bit. Kiwis want to um, adopt, adopt uh, decarbonisation measures to the extent they don't bankrupt us. You know, and I've always said this, I said it on council when I approved the zero uh, carbon policy, I said, there's no blank checks here, guys. You know, we can't um, have this come at the cost of the education of my nine-year-old boy, you know, and my six-year-old girl and, and my ageing parents, you know, and, and the health system, you know, and, and we, we need to start mm -hmm. thinking about, we need, first of all, to, to expose the alarmist narrative for what it is. It is hopelessly unreal. Um, and, and most climate scientists will know that. Professor Dave Freeman, mm -hmm. in one lecture, dropped the bombshell that was climate change is not an existential threat. You could have heard a pin drop. And I'm sitting there going, wow. And, you know, a number of the students, young students, the activists, they were really upset about that. But Dave was very clear about it. And, you know, I was at the Court of Appeal a week or so ago hearing a barrister talking about climate change being the existential threat. We must, uh, the minister must do this, that, and the other thing. And, and I, I went to him afterwards and I said, you know, that's not true. You've misled the court. And he goes, oh, I'm a, you know, it doesn't matter. It's such a big problem that I don't think the court will have any problem with it. 
you know, and this is this is where we're at, you know. I mean, these are smart people. So um, it, it's going to be bold. It's going to be brave. But, but you know, nevertheless, it, it's not that difficult. Tell the truth. Put some honesty out there. Ask our scientists to be honest. Ask our press to be honest. You know, we're not saying it's a hoax. It's, it's not, not a hoax at all. But it's not an existential threat. It's a it's a it's a problem, and we need to deal with it. You know, before we do run out of fossil fuels, then we'll have a real big problem. And I think that's the real political motivation that Kiwis will buy into. Sure. So so uh, let's talk a little bit about RCP, uh, representative representative concentration pathway and the, the shared socioeconomic pathways, the the risk uh, profiling that's going on uh, around this country in terms of our coastal infrastructure uh, and other infrastructure. You know, you've you've been at a council um, dealing with this. I know uh, every councillor in New Zealand is on the, I think there's 57 councils in New Zealand that have coastal, um, coastal uh, perimeters and they're all being tied up in knots with modelling uh, over four or five scenarios. Uh, one including 8.5, and of course uh, the MFE guidelines, as I understand it, have not been uh, defined uh, or may- perhaps tightened up because, you know, last October I think it was, or was it last August, the IPCC even came out and said the most likely scenario uh, would be much less than 8.5. It's probably I think 2.6 to 4.7 from memory. Um, you know, there's masses of people involved in setting up models for every council around the country, I imagine there's huge budgets being set for the worst case scenario. There's a lot of consultants and engineers getting fat out of this. Um, Where do we draw the line here? Is there a line to be drawn? Well, I mean, the coastal planning guidance is clear. It is not part of the Ministry for Environment's responsibility, and they acknowledge that. Coastal planning comes from the Department of Conservation, and it's known as um, Proposal uh, 24, I think it is. And it makes it very clear in the guidance to that that you use likely scenarios. Now, I'm having a very warm conversation with the Ministry for Environment, um, and we're working through... Uh, this issue along with um, another issue which is relating to um, recent estimates of sea level rise. Um, but they, they say very clearly, you know, you need to use a likely scenario and it's up to the politicians as to what they want to, you know, measure that is. But, you know, that, that can be challenged in a court, right? So if it's not, if it's extreme, then it's not likely. So, so... What um, seems to be distracting planners, certainly at the Kapiti Coast and in Wellington City Council, is guidance that was issued by the Ministry for Environment originally in 2017, Now, which, which talks about guidance for coastal developments. Seems to not just overlap, but almost duplicate what the Department of Conservation does. And I understand there's a bit of history between the two departments as to which was, you know, who takes prominence. And I also understand that that guidance that came out, you know, dated 2017 was actually sat on by the previous minister, Nick Smith, National Party, didn't want to release it. And James Shaw got it released, but that's just something I've heard. But importantly, 
the Ministry for Environment's guidance has a disclaimer at the very front saying that this guidance is not to displace any law, regulation or guidance already enforced. So it makes it very clear that it is subservient to the Department of Conservation. And to be completely fair, it's a great piece of work. It does talk about uh, using RCP 8.5 to stress test your modelling. It doesn't say you adopt it for your planning. It says to stress test it. And frankly, RCP 8.5 is so unrealistic. It's been dubbed as implausible by the IPCC. It's written in the AR6 report. Um, work um, that had been done up to the 2017 guidance from Ministry for Environment, and that had been done by um, scientists at NIWA, very good work. They relied on a, a, a published paper which the IPCC had ignored in the sixth assessment report. So my challenge to NIWA, who are rewriting this um, uh, this guidance to update it uh, for 2023 is to ensure they are very close to what the IPCC are now saying about RCP 8.5. I have suggested to the Ministry of Environment they need to strengthen the cross-referencing to the coastal planning um, guidance from the Department of Conservation and make it very clear how those two work. Um, but RCP 8.5 is really only used now to, to, to give your climate model a massive big shove so that you can then see what actually pops out. Because if you don't give it a, a, a hard enough shove, you might not find where those variations are that uh, are above the sort of natural variability. But like we just talked before from... Um, about New Zealand, uh, unless you really shove it a lot harder than we're getting at the moment, you don't know where the rain is going to really be. So, and, and so that's perfectly, perfectly standard um, and acceptable, but you don't use it for planning. <laughs> you use it to test if we do this, how is the wind going to get stronger? Are we going to get uh, longer uh, frost free days? Um, is the precipitation going to change? That, that's why you, you use it. You know, put 10 million volts through the thing and see what it does. And, so, um, and then you can then identify which particular aspect of the climate is most sensitive. It's as simple as that, right? What happens if we do this and really, really shove it hard? Does the sea level, uh, does the cliff start eroding? You know, all these sorts of things that you, you wouldn't get if you simply... Um, you know, use your observations over the last 50 years, for example, and, and you know, try and figure out well, in 50 years' time, it doesn't, we don't really know what's different, uh, if anything. So, so that, that, that needs to be made very clear to um, the, the coastal planning community and to the, um, particularly the, uh, you know, the private contractors. Um, and, uh, and, and there needs to be, you know, I see city councils and I've worked obviously with Wellington. They're not interested in seeing anything other than worst case scenarios. And I just don't understand it. I said, well, but 
you know, and I know that I've worked with them, right? <laughs> I'm no longer an elected member. They don't have to worry about listening to me. It's pretty much the, the, the response I got. But, you know, even the South Coast uh, ratepayers um, who, who were constituents of mine, and, and I know their, their leaders, and I've said, look, guys, you know, what you're seeing here is, is part of a very aggressive model, which is almost certainly not going to happen. But they've got their own sort of game plan as well. They want the city council to build seawalls because they are being inundated, you know, once or twice a year, the, the sea does come over onto their roads. And so, you know, the city council should build some seawalls. You don't need to do a climate model to, 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 to know that. But, you know, their concern is, well, if you if you actually take away this these latest estimates and don't use the RCP 8.5, then the, the model looks kind of, well, not much happening here. Um, maybe the council can go build another cycleway or something. So, yeah, so there, there are very, it's very interesting how people's sort of agendas, you know, line up. It's not all about getting mm-hmm. carbon out of the atmosphere and that sort of thing. Sometimes it's, there's a selfish aspect about well this, this suits me uh, i can get funding for this or i can get a contract to do this two years uh, you know um the recent claims not claims but the recent um study that uh, about sea level rise um it came out of um some folks that i know of at university good scientists um but there's 20 million dollars of funding at stake right so we're talking these, these are big numbers um, and it's involving, you know, geoscientists, you know, experts in tectonics at, at GNS. Um, it's involving people from abroad who, who do, you know, sea level modelling internationally. Um, but they use quite novel technology, and, and then as a consequence, it's, it doesn't quite stack up. So that's been held up awkwardly. It's been held up for nearly a year in the peer review. Peer review. Can't get yeah. published. And I've been, because I, you know, because I've got a, a master's of the subject and because I was a, running the city council and I knew all about all the sea level measurements and all the different other climate indicators, it was my job, my passion. When this came out, I just went, well, this is crazy. And I rang up a few old mates from the oil and gas industry uh, who are geologists, you know, uh, they, they are contract geologists, so they might do oil and gas one day, but civil engineering and, and stuff the next day. I said, what do, you, what do you reckon about this? And they said, no, it just doesn't make sense. It's inconsistent with everything we know and, and the latest research. And so anyway, so I've pursued that. And uh, I, I know the guys, my heart goes out to them actually because it's a really, really interesting piece of work. They've worked really hard to get it together. But the unfortunate thing is um, they assumed that it would pass the peer review and, and now it's, it's kind of let loose. The planners have got it. Uh, and once they've got it, it's hard to get it off them. So, so just, a minute, just a minute, this, Sean. So our planners are now using something that's not peer-reviewed. It is still stuck there. And yeah, that, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Yeah, so you might remember uh, it was the 1st of May last year. It was a Sunday that uh, this sort of um, whispers of, a, of, of lots of parts of coastal New Zealand was sinking. Yeah. And that would double the effect of sea level rise and... Um, they signal, uh, set out um, Tony here in Wellington and the south coast. And I drop my son at Queen's Wharf every day and there's a tide gauge there. And I look at it now and again just out of interest and there's one at Tapapa as well. And I know that the currency level there, which is only you know, a couple of kilometres from Tony, um, is, is below where it was in 2016. And that's because 
that was an El Nino year. That, that changed things. Uh, well, actually, the, the following La Nina changed it. And uh, in Kaikoura, Kaikoura lifted, um, you know, a couple of metres along the actual coast, but it lifted, um, you know, Wairapa and Wellington as well, and probably eliminated about 30, 30, 40 years worth of sea level rise. So I'm sort of going, God, you're panicking a lot of people here. And, um, you know, I've got a batch on the um, Kapiti Coast. <laughs> but, <you> know, <laughs> and I'm sort of going, you know, and then, then I see that the mayor of Kapiti Coast at the time wanted to immediately put on limbs reports the output of this model. And, and it came packaged with an online tool. You can go, you can still Google it. And it's, it's actually quite quite sexy, actually. Um, you can Google it and you can go on. You can put your different representative concentration pathway um, and you can include the vertical land movement, uh, which is this subsidence um, trend. Now, the problem with that trend is that it was taken during what they call an interseismic uh, period, which was between 2003 and 2011. So it was just seven years. And as a consequence, it doesn't have any of the uplifting stuff. <laughs> just crazy. So no wonder you've got this trend going out with, with massive sea level rise, you know, 30 centimetres of Tony. You know, I mean, the whole of New Zealand, only um, so, well, sea level came up by 20-odd centimetres the whole of the 20th century. And to, to say that Petone is going to be under by 30 centimetres uh, in a matter of 10 or 20 years is, is asking a lot for people to believe. And it's, this tool, um, the NZ series, if I'm not wrong, I believe the only measurements it's considering is from 2003 to 2011, isn't it? Seven years. Yeah, so, so and the, the, the thing about, I mean, I um, touched base with a, uh, a satellite expert that I know, Mm. And she said, well, why don't they use the whole set? And I said, what do you mean? She goes, well, you can, you can download the data. It's been running since 2000 and whatever, and, and, and right up till right now. It's so 2021 or 22, I think it was. Mm. So, they, so they, instead of actually, like, downloading the whole data set, they've un- downloaded a short piece because it was actually downloaded by GNS for a totally different reason. And they actually downloaded data across the whole of New Zealand, not just coastal New Zealand. And they wanted to make sure their data was not distorted by these annoying, uplifting earthquakes. So they deliberately went for the time uh, period of five years or more where they had minimised. In fact, they even took out data that was corrupted because of two major earthquakes in the South yeah. Island, right? Now, this is all written up in a peer-reviewed publication and published in a, in a leading journal. And I'm reading this going, oh, this is interesting. And what do you know? They had trouble getting half the data set, half the data set, which is the bit. So you, you collect data flying North Pole to South Pole and South Pole to North Pole. One's the ascending data, the other's the descending data. Well, the descending data... Um, was a bit corrupted or something and, and and wasn't collected. And then they so they say, and as a consequence, there there is um, limited use for forward projections. So I emailed GNS and I said, wasn't isn't this what you guys or the other parts of the team are actually doing? They came back and said, well, yeah, I suppose you're right, but um, you know, it's the best data set we've got, um, you know, and it's probably not likely that we're going to have an earthquake in Wellington anyway for the next 150 years. So probably good and I went well I'm, I was sitting on the board of trustees for the Sky Stadium at that time 
when we made a decision we weren't going to insure the stadium anymore because premiums are so high that it was far better to spend the money on strengthening the stadium than paying, you know, to have a, a partial replacement. So, and here's, here's GNS telling me there won't be an earthquake in Wellington for 150 okay. years. It just didn't add up. And, Does it? Uh, you know, I've been quite disappointed how I've been treated by uh, the scientific community in, in, or some members of the community anyway just wouldn't respond to me. I mean, I was an elected member, policymaker, asking legitimate questions of taxpayer-funded scientists. So, you know, some question marks there, which, you know, I'll take up with the right people at the right time. But for now, you know, I'm, I'm letting the guys get their uh, work done and, and to try and knock their manuscript that they submitted in July last year. Hopefully they can get it in a state that it can be published and we can make some adjustments maybe to their online tool and tidy up the Ministry for Advices, uh, Ministry for Environment's uh, guidance. I uh, look forward to that, Sean, and I'm conscious of the time. But quickly, before I go, what's next for you? Uh, well, actually, I'm in the, um, I'm not sure if I should say this, but I am actually put my hand up to stand for the ACT Party. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going through that process at the moment. Um, but I'm, uh, I, you know, when I decided not to stand for council, what I realised was that I'm far better lawyer than a politician um, and that I could actually probably do more meaningful things for my community uh, as a as a project lawyer, energy and infrastructure lawyer, um, but also as a, as a public public law watchdog. Uh, you know, I see decisions being made based on very flimsy evidence, um, manufactured stuff, uh, surveys that are self-serving, you know, all that sort of thing. And, and, you know, that's why people in a lot of places are really unhappy with their city councils because the, the, the city council create their own narrative that they, they fervently believe, don't get out of their echo chamber to ask the population what they want and then wonder why everyone hates them when they stick a bloody cycle away right through their businesses destroying their businesses taking all their car parks when only a half dozen people use it you go well i remember one of my green party colleagues and i love her dearly she's a lovely lady she goes sean i don't understand why people find us so unpopular i said build them a second mount back tunnel sarah they'll love us forever (laughs) 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 it's it's funny you you bring that that sort of stuff up today as i was listening to mayor brown on the um, radio tonight i thought um i wonder if you've actually your 373 million dollar budget hole has anything to do with rcp 8.5 being budgeted for in it and maybe i could have taken 100 million out of your budget for you instantly mayor brown but i hope he's on top of it because he's mr fix it he'll be right well you know, we're drifting a wee bit, but I mean, yeah. you know, you see them, the media obviously wanted the, the Labour Party guy to win and they've been beating Brown up ever since. And ever uh, since. I think, uh, you know, more power to the guy if you ask me. I mean, I, I made a joke on uh, about, um, so Wellington has a one-third share of uh, an airport as well, Wellington Airport. And um, the, the prospect of selling those shares came up a year or so ago. Well... Suddenly, my my Labour-aligned councillors turned into militant trade unionists. You're trying to privatise the public assets and all this sort of, I thought they're going to march off down to the ferry terminal and, you know, rekindle the days of Jim Knox and, you know, tattooing the (laughs) solidarity sister, all this sort of thing. And I just just pointed out to them, do you realise that Infratil owns the airport? It's a private (laughs) asset. 
And if we're not careful, they're going to expand it. We're going to have to pay our share of this very unpopular high-emitting asset. <laughs> but, but nevertheless, by that stage, it was too good a story. It was all privatisation. Just go talk about dog whistle politics. Oh, we, could, <laughs> we, we could put them onto the fire in the UK, and they want to have absolute, I don't quite know what fire stands for, but uh, they want absolute zero and zero flying. So, look, uh, airports will be valueless uh, if they have their way. <laughs> well, <laughs> You know, and, and we need, it's unfortunately, though, we can laugh about it, but it's no laughing matter. No, it doesn't. And, uh, I had a very good conversation, actually, with Jim Bolger yesterday about methane. And if you don't mind me um, just reading from the minutes, the cabinet minutes that approved New Zealand going into the United Nations Framework Convention, and this was Jim's, Jim was the chair, and he mm-hmm. remembers this. And I've, um, paragraph 9 says that the convention guidelines require countries to address all greenhouse gases, which includes methane. New Zealand has significant agricultural methane emissions and an unknown level of nitrous oxide. In the absence of significant scientific and technological advances, we do not expect to be able to make significant progress on either methane or nitrous oxide. Other countries will be in a similar position as the Convention specifically recognises the need for technology to be available to enable countries to deal uh, with emissions, blah, blah, blah. We believe New Zealand's inability to reduce emissions in these areas can be adequately justified. And I said to Jim, how has that ever fallen out of the conversation? He goes, I don't know, Sean. I don't know, but we need to protect the farmers. And, you know, I see the Irish Irish and the Dutch are now going to make big cuts to their herds. Well, that's just going to affect food production. It's just, you know, and I, I can tell you also, my mate Dave Frame, he wrote a scathing email to James Shaw about global warming potential. And basically, you know, he's made the point, and it's well accepted in the science, that methane is a short-lived gas. Yes. It goes up, it comes down, provided you, you have a the same amount going in, it's the same amount coming out, you're not adding to the warming of the planet. You do not need to reduce it to zero. You simply need to stabilise it. And, you know, and, and, and James Shaw got a rocket and uh, he, he came back and his, I actually went through the Official Information Act and asked, well, what was your response? And it kind of was like, well, we've made commitments to the international community. And like you go, well... How about making? Uh, how about sticking up for your bloody New Zealand oh, farmers? Yeah. yeah, well, there's a there's good activity in that uh, space right now, Sean, and uh, all power to people like you who mention it uh, and bring it to other people's attention. We're doing our best on RCR to bring it to attention of as many people as we can. I'm aware today of an article written by Barry Brill, um, and he's published it on Bassett, Brash, and Hyde's um, website. Uh, and tonight it. It really does, uh, sorry, today it really does highlight what's in front of us and it does put the wood on the minister. It puts the wood on every politician who has signed and continue to sign New Zealand, or can sign, I should say, New Zealand farmers to this horrible 48% nonsense. And of course, when you keep pushing that narrative for 20 years um, and you're trying to change it, the blood nose has to go somewhere. And sadly, the blood nose will be paid for by the whole community um, uh, because these politicians move on and they leave us with a hangover. So anyway, um, Sean, I think we could go on for hours. I 
you started off um, giving us your uh, your career um, up to date or to date, and you talked about gymnastics. So I'm going back to that. We've had a real gymnastic performance uh, today uh, listening to you. It's 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 great to have the to and fro that you understand that's gone on. Um, and we're just, this platform that we're using is all about trying to bring the truth to people uh, and both sides of the story. Uh, it seems pretty one-sided to me at the moment because we can only, uh, we've had so much of the other side of the story for so long. It's so important we get this side out. And so uh, can I thank you on behalf of Greenwashed and Jaspreet and I and, and all our listeners, thank you for being so candid. And we look to have you back one day. Thanks very much. I'll be thrilled to come back. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you so much, Sean. Jaspreet Boparai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. And with that, we come to the end of this week's Greenwash show. From me, Jaspreet and Don Nicholson, thank you so much for joining us today. And we hope you enjoyed the show. Our thanks to our guests, Sean Rush and Gemma Rasmussen from Consumer NZ. Now, before we go, I'd like to sign off with, you guessed it, yet another podcast from James Lindsay, the American-born author, mathematician, and political commentator. Dr. James Lindsay has written quite a few books spanning a gamut of issues from religion, the philosophy of science, and postmodern theory. He's the co-founder of New Discourses, and the podcast today is going to deal with something we should all get very familiar with, ESG, environmental and social governance factors, which are at this point dictating what industries do, where do they invest, and basically sort of a corporate noose, if I may put it that way. So I hope you enjoy this, and we'll see you again next week. Have a great one. Bye-bye. Today we talk about ESG. If you wondered why woke keeps happening, why all the corporations above a certain size are going woke, why all the new startups are woke, this isn't organic or not wholly organic. It's not just that the values of the people entering the managerial world are generally woke. It is, in fact, because there is a scam, a cartel, actually, that's running the entire thing from within the finance industry and within the investment industry. And that is called ESG, which is three letters, another acronym, of course. It stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance Scoring and Policy. So what you have is a small number of actors and very large financial institutions who have created this concept of what environmental responsibility looks like, what social responsibility looks like, and what proper corporate governance responsibility looks like, allegedly because it creates long-term profitability, something that investors would be interested in, not just short-term profitability. And they manipulate the market rather than having a free market where companies can do what they want. They get these scores off of this, uh, these ESG scores. And then the major asset managers like Vanguard, BlackRock, Fidelity, State Street, Goldman Sachs, maybe Wells Fargo, and so on, decide if they're going to manage the assets, give investment capital, give uh, preferential uh, loans of, of other capital to these entities, depending on what their ESG score happens to be. And so I often give the metaphor when I talk about ESG is that if you want to control the bull on Wall Street, 
how are you going to do it? Well, it turns out little fearless girl isn't going to do it. It's that you put a ring through the bull's nose. And the name of that ring is ESG, Environmental Social Governance Scoring, which is run like a cartel, like a financial mafia by a very small number of very incestuous large finance companies. This whole concept grew originally out of the idea of corporate social responsibility, which was kind of floating around 15 or 20 years ago, maybe even 30 years ago, where uh, the idea that we should be trying to pressure companies through various means, including you know stock and investment, to take responsible measures for including long-term sustainability, as it were, but also just for social responsibility goals. And it kind of got hijacked into this tool of totalitarianism. I sometimes say it's like the one ring from the Lord of the Rings because it gives such an enormous amount of control over such a small thing. Uh, if BlackRock doesn't like your ESG score, they might sell all your shares uh, and tank your stock, for example, and they may hold you know, a sizable percentage of those. They may show up uh, holding those substantial amounts and proxy vote to make sure that you implement these policies. They may withhold investment capital or give you uh, bad rates, citing that you are a long-term sustainability risk. But the problem is, is that while maybe environmental policy, social policy, governance policy have something to do with long-term success and profitability of a company, and maybe they're even good in and of themselves for other reasons, it is not good when the small number of actors have this much control over the entire market. And in fact, what you see under the environmental, social, and governance uh, standards is in fact that the decisions are arbitrary. So with an environmental, while we might be able to debate what makes sound environmental policy, and certainly nobody wants anybody pumping, say, loads of chemicals into the river like happened a hundred years ago, uh, what you see is that the model that is promoted within the environmental ESG score is what is known as climate justice, which is that they're going to force, you know, green energy, um, no fossil fuels whatsoever, divestment from fossil fuels, carbon taxes. Um, they're also going to uh, rather arbitrarily decide what constitutes an environmental good. For example, with COVID-19, even though there are billions of masks polluting the ocean now, using masks reduce the environmental hazard of the virus, and therefore lots and lots of masks and mandating masks at your workplace was considered good environmental practice. Climate justice is the application of global communism to the uh, concept of climate change so that they can take rich nations and get them to uh, break themselves financially while pretending to prop up poor nations, which are being held up as, 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 as tokenistic props for this project. So it is a global financial redistribution scheme using climate change as the excuse. And of course, the number of things that they can implement one, they have arbitrary power through climate, not just climate accords, not just divestment from certain forms of energy, but, uh, you know, going so far as to limit the amount of travel that you can have to maybe none, uh, to climate lockdowns, et cetera, uh, are all things that are on the table. So the environmental score is a, is a means for using climate change as an excuse to implement communist policy and um, arbitrary power, which, of course, is redundant. The social score is even more explicitly Marxist in its origin because it is short for social justice score. Why are there so many DEI officers in so many organizations getting paid a quarter million dollars a year or at least over $100,000 a year and they hire more and more and more of these commissars? 
Well, the reason is because your social score for ESG goes up when you implement the social justice identity Marxist theories like critical race theory, queer theory, gender theory, um, comprehensive sex education, and so on. Uh, you name it, whatever the the social justice theory of the day is, your social score goes up when you implement according to diversity, equity, inclusion, justice, belonging programs, and it goes down if you buck, challenge, or don't go along with those. And so hiring a diversity commissar for your business raises your social score. Um, so again, you have arbitrary power now with equity, which is literally socialism, uh, as the primary uh mechanism by which you're it's determined whether or not you're being socially responsible. Of course, again, this is arbitrary power. As the conflict in between Russia and Ukraine came out, they floated the idea that the, your social score under ESG would go up if you invested in weapons or if you were a weapons manufacturer, uh, so Halliburton or something like that, because it contributes to a global social positive good in their eyes if you supply the Ukrainians with weapons to fight the Russians for whatever reasons they have and this small group of people who make these decisions. Governance, of course, is corporate governance, and this is a split thing. Yes and no, there are good things where there is good corporate management, and there are other things. And the whole thing is, um, again, an excuse for arbitrary power. M one of the easiest ways to get your governance score to go up is to install these commissars, to adopt some kind of a sustainability protocol as outlined, say, by the United Nations or something like this. And so it's completely arbitrary. Of course, the World Economic Forum, with all the weird things it's doing and all of the totalitarian things it's doing, is a big promoter of ESG. They say that ESG is the path to a sustainable and inclusive future. And so you see the real purpose behind requiring ESG for investment capital if you want to do a startup or if you want to get more capital for your existing company or to get yourself into asset management or if you're an institution like a public university or school system to have your assets managed by these firms at all, uh, having to play ball according to these policies, which are ultimately an excuse for arbitrary power. I want to talk about installing DEI commissars at, you know, a hundred thousand to a quarter million dollars a pop. There's also ESG officers who come in and they try to make sure that your company is compliant. And those are often getting paid seven figures. So it's a very corrupt industry. But most importantly, it is it cre ESG creates a de facto trust, monopoly type trust, or even cartel behavior run by these small number of institutions. Again, BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, Fidelity, uh, maybe Goldman Sachs and Wells Fargo, these massive asset management firms, and they are running it like a cartel. If it was something where there were different ESG scores and you could compete about what it means and people could see you know, which one does what and your score is still high, depending on with different theories, rather than, say, some 20 to 50 people or something making the decisions about what qualifies as good ESG and bad ESG, uh, maybe we'd be in a different circumstance. But what this is doing in practice, and this is what lawmakers need to be looking at particularly, is it's allowing for corporations to create mega trusts. So trust behavior is, of course, illegal. Antitrust laws are uh, in place to stop this. And what you have here is a way to create a mega trust among many, maybe thousands of corporations at the same time without anybody having to go sign any kind of contract whatsoever. You just tie up all their investment money into something that they all have to sign on to. Like I tell people very frequently, you don't need a conspiracy, even if there is one, when you have a cult. And this metric creates a de facto trust without any of the usual legal uh 
tools that create the trust. And so lawmakers, policymakers, and executives need to start thinking of ways that they can attack this on antitrust law, uh, existing policy, or even crafting new policy that targets it directly. Because this is what is dragging the world woke. This is why go woke, go broke doesn't work in reality. This is a violation of uh, shareholder trust shifting over to these ESG so-called stakeholders who are unappointed, or sorry, are appointed unelected technocrats. And so um, there are a lot of reasons why ESG needs to be thought of as possibly felonious uh, behavior. It is in violation of shareholder fiduciary trust, and it is creating a cartel situation where the big banks are kind of organized, I should say the big investment firms are organizing hundreds or even thousands of corporations to all play along along the same environmental, social, and governance agendas, uh, even without having the kind of old school backroom deals that we associate with actual trust behavior. Although these things are discussed and hammered out in kind of those exact same environments. So ESG is a catastrophe. It is the scam of the century. Its objective is so-called sustainability, which is going to be also the arbitrary decision of these same so-called stakeholders. And all of capitalism, the entire market, is being dragged around like a bull with a ring through its nose. And the name of that ring is ESG. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio.